You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. in some kind of an accident. There is no evidence of a conspiracy. These people were killed. And whoever killed them is going to try to kill me. Austin thinks that maybe we all saw something up there. We're in the business of reporting the news, not creating it. You've been asking questions about me and things you know nothing about. What I know is I need a good alias and I need a good idea. Who are you? You know, there for a moment, I thought you were a man. My life is in danger just being here. And whoever's behind this is in the business of recruiting assassins. I think I got some of their entrance exams. Congratulations, Richard. You've had some very interesting scores on the first series of tests for Parallax. You know, your tests suggest that you have remarkable talents. In a risk situation, I believe you'll go right down the line. You see, the very quality that gets you in trouble is what makes you potentially invaluable. We're prepared to offer you the most lucrative and rewarding work of your life. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Stashew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm here. Also with us this week is Ms. Jess Byard. Hi. This week we are discussing the 1974 film from director Alan J. Pakula, The Parallax View. This film stars Warren Beatty as reporter Joe Frady. After a mysterious series of deaths, Frady gets embroiled in an investigation that leads him to the Parallax Corporation, a shady company that finds and recruits sociopaths in order to use them as assassins. Now we're going to be getting to spoilers on this episode, so if you don't want anything ruined for you, turn it off and come back after you've seen The Parallax View. So, Jess, I have to ask you, when was the first time you saw the film, and what did you think? Well, the first time I saw this film was when I watched it for this podcast. Oh, wow. It's been on my to-watch list forever. You know, that list that we all have of things that we should be ashamed for not of seeing yet. This is pretty high up on that list for me. The second part of your question is, what did I think? I mean, I think it's fantastic. It's not my top 70s paranoia government thriller movie. But it would definitely be in the top three. And Warren Beatty's hair is just fantastic. Perfectly quaffed in every scene. It is. It's just so fluffy. It's so fluffy! 
Chris, this was a first time watch for you as well? Yeah, no, it was. It's a good movie. There's a lot of parts in the film that really drag, but it's a film that's 102 minutes from the 70s, so I'd be less surprised if there weren't parts that dragged. And uh, it was good. It's it's very much that 70s paranoia, politico, reporters in the mix trying to figure out the baddies in the government. Those rascally reporters. Yeah. I liked it. It was fun. I mean, but then again, I mean, Mike, you know that I'm all about conspiracy theories. And I don't know if you guys know this, but they're turning the frogs gay. From political assassination to gay frogs. Gay frogs because of the chemtrails. No, this, I think this movie is, is a lot of fun. What about you, Mike? I'm a, this is not the first time you've seen this, obviously. No, no. I've seen this many times. And I have to say that each time I see it, I get a little bit more out of it and come to appreciate it a little bit more. Even watching it again after reading the Lorenzo Semple version of it, reading the Lauren Singer book, reading the Lorenzo Semple script, reading the David Geidler script, and then watching the movie again, I got even more out of it because I kind of understood some of the unspoken things that were happening in the film that I might not have gotten before. And I have to say that this movie, I've seen it I don't know, five, six times now, and I probably watched it the first time on VHS and subsequent times on DVD. This really needs to have a restoration. Oh, dear God. The copy I watched, it looked like it was recorded off of someone's TV from a VHS. The copy I watched, I I rented it off Amazon. So your copy was probably better. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I mean, it, it just looked like like a pretty, like a good DVD quality. Well, we know that Gordon Willis could make things beautiful. You know, he was one of the top great cinematographer, but watching this version of it, it's just like, man, this thing is so muddy. And there are times where it's like, I mean, they are playing with darkness and shadow so much that if you don't have a good looking copy of it, it's just like, what the hell's going on here? What am I looking at? Yeah, I really enjoy this movie. And I kind of like, and you know, we, we gave the spoiler warnings at the beginning. I kind of like that the good guys don't win in this and it really fits that 70s mold so well i mean 70s films were the you never knew what was going to happen you never knew if your hero was going to make it out alive or not you know it's like we've talked on the show before about arthur penn's night moves and mosby isn't doing that great at the end of the movie just his boat spinning around in circles in the ocean and he and uh joe frady i think could share a lot of stories if they ever got together also, I think Harry Call from the conversation could add a few things in there, which would be weird because you'd have two Gene Hackmans in the same space. What about Jack Terry from Blowout? Ooh, yes. That's what this reminded me of. Obviously, Blowout came out in the 80s, but I mean, it came out in 81, so it was skirting the line. Among other things like the Manchurian Candidate, obviously, this film reminded me a lot of Blowout. I can definitely see that, but for me, like Blowout is, is my... One of my favorite movies of all time. I absolutely love Blowout. And for me, this was like a subdued, a really subdued version. Like it was just like kept waiting because I really enjoyed it. But I just for some reason, I just kept waiting for it to like get a little bit more. I don't know, a little bit more electric and it never really happened. I think that that goes to the credit of De Palma with Blowout. Because this, yeah, this movie really feels drawn back from itself. And 
I'm going to be perfectly honest. I am no fan of David Geiler. <laughs> I honestly cannot stand him. Uh, everything I've ever seen him in interviews or him talking about the movies he's made, he seems like he's very uh, full of himself. And so it kind of comes through a little bit in the script for this film. But I'll say that De Palma directing and shooting his own film that he wrote... There's a lot more style to it than this film. This film feels not like by the numbers, because I feel like that's derogatory in a way. But this film feels a lot more straightforward than Blowout and a lot less stylistically interesting. Right. Yeah, exactly. In the way that Blowout was kind of a remix of Chappaquiddick and the JFK assassination, this is a remix of JFK and RFK. You know, even the beginning of the film where we have this uh, scene taking place in the Space Needle, and we've got these two waiters, one who doesn't seem to shoot his gun, and the other one who does shoot the senator, Senator Carroll, or this candidate Carroll, I should say. You know, this is right out of the Sirhan Sirhan playbook. You know, this is uh, the whole idea of possibly having two shooters. They even have a nod to the RFK assassination where we see a girl with a polka dot dress passing by in one shot. So they're really smart as far as the way that they're mixing and matching stuff and taking those two conspiracies and mixing them together and giving us this. And it's not necessarily about the conspiracy or even the conspirators, but really it seems to be more about the patsies and this whole idea of the Parallax Corporation. It's picking the people who are going to pull the trigger, but also picking the guys who are going to take the fall, which is a really interesting way to go about it. And I like that the character of Joe Frady does not realize any of this throughout the entire movie. Obviously, Mike, because you'd seen this, this this isn't this question's not really for you. But Jess, when did you kind of realize that he was taking the fall? I think I figured it out pretty early on. Okay. I mean, it it just seemed like like you said, not paint by numbers because that sounds a derogatory. But I think everybody kind of knows what we mean. It's, it's just very. This is what's going to happen in this kind of movie. So yeah, I was like, okay, this is the seventies. It's a much more cynical movie making time whereas like in the 60s you had the fa the face of evil was always foreign the face of evil was never american it was never whatever but in the 70s it was a different time so yeah i, I figured out pretty early on like once he starts talking to mcginn i'm like i this guy's not not all with it there <laughs> not yeah. all not all uh, all american but what I don't understand is how he didn't realize that he was being set up. It's like, man, you're like, you don't don't you realize you're being used here? And then at the end, he's like, oh shit, the rifle's right below me. It's like, oh god, you're so dumb, dude, man. Come on. Like they wouldn't figure like his disguise. I know we're jumping ahead here, but like his fake out, fake personality, or fake fake identity. The fact that they would just fall for that instantly was also like, what? Like, how are they not going to see through that identity immediately? Well, I thought it was kind of clever the way that he actually uses a fake identity on top of a fake identity. He gets one fake person to be and then another one on top of that. So when they discover he, you're not that person, then he kind of throws them a bone and says, well, actually, I'm this other guy. 
I mean, they might know right off the bat that he's not who he says he is. And there are many times throughout the movie where I sit here and I try to think, where do they know? Do they know right from the get-go? Do they know at this point in the story? Do they know when he gives up that identity? Do they know when they give him the parallax test, you know, the, the movie that they show him? When is it that his cover is blown? And you, you sound really cynical to me tonight, Chris. Maybe it's the lack of sleep, but I was really hoping and with Frady as far as I hope that he gets away with it and not necessarily thinking that he should have figured it out way earlier. I honest to God thought that they knew who he was from the moment he submitted his information. I went full bore like conspiracy theory. Like they know from the start, like you, you've been set up from the get go. Everything is kind of pointing to this whole elaborate, like you're sort of like the last witness standing, but I didn't expect him. I I really didn't know whether or not he was going to make it at the end. I knew that he was being set up, but I didn't know really how it was going to turn out. Well, there's one definite point where they for sure know who he is, and that's when they kill his newspaper editor and take the tapes that Freddy has been making and sending them over to Hume Cronin. And I really like that relationship between Freddy and his editor. It kind of reminds me of Kolchak, as really when I think about it, uh, you know, this like 1974, same year that Kolchak is coming out, and this whole idea of the reporter looking for the truth and the editor giving him a hard time and their relationship, you know, this is news, Tony, this whole thing going on. And that back and forth between them, but there's kind of a mutual respect and also the way that Cronin talks about like six years ago, which is three years before the opening scene. Six years ago, you were a mess and you were an alcoholic and all this kind of stuff and you've turned your life around, but I still don't trust you and I still don't necessarily believe you and I think you're going down a rabbit hole. I do like how his editor is the only one who knows that he's alive because that's always a good thing to do. There's only one person who knows. I hope they don't die and I hope their tapes don't get stolen. And if they do, then no one will believe me and I will become a massive patsy and I will have there will be a lot of circulity to the entire film because the film essentially ends the way it began. But hey, you're the only one who knows I'm still alive. Well, yeah, it really does end the way that it begins. I mean, we we start with this kind of preamble at the Space Needle and really we start with a shot of this totem pole and... I kept looking for, cause to me, there's no such thing as like a throwaway shot in something that, uh, Pakula does. And so I'm just like, what is this? What is this totem pole? And of course it, you know, calls to mind the space needle, which is right behind it. But I'm just like, I'm wondering if he's trying to say like conspiracies are as old and as part of America as what was here before we even got here kind of thing, because it just, this cycle of violence and setups and corruption, it just continues on, like from the beginning of this film all the way to the end. And we get this great bookend of these two tribunals, these seven guys sitting there in this room where we don't see an audience at all, which is an interesting thing, even though they're talking to an audience. And the way that we push in at one point and then we pull out at the end. And it's just like, these guys are always going to be sitting here saying there's no conspiracy. There's nothing to look at. These people acted alone. They had their weird reasons. We don't know why, but that's it. And even the way that 
Pakula shoots them with this wide angle lens so that they're distorted at the edges. I mean, it's a really wide, like almost to the point of being a fish angle lens where it's just, or a fisheye lens that it is great the way that we start and end with these two tribunals to say, nope, nope, the Carol assassination, that was a guy working alone. Oh, and this Hammond assassination, that was also a guy working alone. You said that every shot has to mean something. Where were the Calumet baking powder cans? That's what I always think of. There's one that's turned to the side, so it's it's a duplicitous agreement. Did you see the poster with the Minotaur on it? Oh my god, ugh. Well, yeah, I did, actually. And you can actually tell it's a minotaur because the lower body looks like minotaur legs. If you don't know what we're talking about, Room 237 is an insane person's movie. <laughs> For the listeners who don't know, <laughs> but it's amazing. <laughs> it's an interesting look at people who read way too much into stuff. Which is what I'd love to do. I felt my kin there. I'm not saying that The Shining is totally straightforward, but that's a bit extreme. It is about faking the moon landing. That's what you're saying. Yes, 100%. Totally. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not saying I don't know what it's about, but it's totally about the, the plight of the Native Americans. So, <laughs> which ties back into the totem pole at the beginning of this movie, which clearly means Stanley Kubrick made this movie. I, I think you do have a point, though, Mike, with the totem pole, because it is supposed to mirror the Space Needle. Because there would be no reason to show the totem pole otherwise. One is nice that it kind of eclipses the Space Needle, and the Space Needle's like this big, you know, modern thing that's going on, and the way that we even see them ascending into the Space Needle, you know, it's just like kind of this neat shot, you know, of them going up there. It's a little Jetsons-y, yeah. And it's also interesting that when we first see Warren Beatty, he's just kind of in the background. Like, we don't even get a close-up of this guy for the longest time. He's like third guy to the left, obscured by other people. And it's really Paul Apprentice and and William uh, Daniels there who are in the forefront, and one on one side of the screen, one on the other side of the screen. And then when Frady is trying to get up into the elevator to go with them— Paul Apprentice is like, no, I don't know this guy. And I'm always curious, had they met by that point? Because they obviously have a past later on when they talk, but there is a span of three years here. Does she really not know who he is? Or is she just busting his balls and saying, no, I don't know this guy? Because he never witnesses the assassination. I assume the latter. I got the impression that they had, that they were maybe a couple at that point. Or maybe she was starting, I don't know, maybe something was starting between them and she was trying to keep, like, a professional distance. But, yeah, I mean, they, they definitely have some kind of romantic past, at least from my point of view, when they meet the, the, in the present after, you know, three years after the assassination. They had some kind of romantic relationship, but it's hard to tell whether or not that started before or after. Why else would she shut him out like that? Because it seemed like it wasn't. she wasn't doing it like, I don't know who that is. She looked at him and was like, I don't know who that is. Uh, but again, who doesn't know who Warren Beatty is with the perfectly coiffed hair? My God. God. And if you don't know him, then why don't you want to know him? <laughs> so I was telling Mike this when I spoke with him earlier today. This is the first film I've ever seen that has Warren Beatty in it. Wow. Yeah. Whole, how? how? <laughs> I can't believe you haven't seen know. Dick Tracy at least. I, I probably saw it a long time ago, but it was so long ago that I don't even remember it. That's the one that has uh, Al Pacino in it, right? There are only a handful of Warren Beatty films that I go back to, 
Uh, this is one of them, and McCabe and Mrs. Miller is another one. So if you want a, a good one to go to next, I would say go to that one. Isn't that the one that inspired Solo, according to Slashfilm? I have no idea. I'm just letting you know that an article is written about McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and they claim that it inspired not only Star Wars, but Solo, so... I really don't know how that happened. Wow. It's called grasping at straws when you have no other way to create content. Um, No, I've never seen a Warren Beatty film before. I've never seen Bonnie and Clyde. Um, I've never seen Bullworth. Is that a movie that people like? You probably shouldn't brag about not seeing Bonnie and Clyde. I've also never seen The Karate Kid, so... You're not missing much. Yeah, I haven't seen The Karate Kid since I was a kid, and I don't really, I don't get it. I know people love it. I know evidently Cobra Kai is like a lot better than everybody thought it was going to be, but I just, I don't know. I, it didn't ever, didn't ever get me. Well, I mean, I am curious since we're talking about having never seen movies that people are supposed to have seen. I, I mean, I guess like for me, it's things with Warren, like Bonnie and Clyde is a movie I should have seen. Like when, when you guys talk to people, are there, is there like ever a movie that you're like ashamed that you've never seen? Because, like, Mike's never seen Star Wars, so... But I have seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is the same thing. <laughs> According to Slashville. Zabrinsky Point is one that always jumps to mind. Really, I'd say I've only seen one Antonioni film, and I've never cared to go back, but I hear that I'm missing out. I've never seen Lawrence of Arabia. And that is one that I'm kind of, like, holding out for because I want to see it on a big screen. And Cleopatra, for the same reason. They're both just like they're epic movies that I want, you know, filmed in huge widescreen. Like I just I want to see that vastness on a huge screen. Yeah, and see, I feel like that's a legitimate reason. When I when, I, when I've had this conversation with people, they're like, "You've never seen X Y Z movie." I'm like, yeah, "I don't know. I just never got excited about seeing Karate Kid. Like, I know all the I know all the beats of it. Like, I know the sweep the leg Johnny and all that. It's like, why do I need to watch it? I know all the beats. It's it's yeah, it's part of the pop culture kind of zeitgeist, or at least it was for the 80s, and the 80s are cool again. So back to the fact that I've never seen Bonnie and Clyde, I'm more inclined to watch it now because I really liked Ward Beatty in this movie. Oh, good. I've always had issues with that scene where we kind of rejoin the narrative, and it's Frady going through the house and saying that he lost his parrot, because it's just like, I'm not really sure what's going on and even after reading all those screenplays in the book and all that kind of stuff i still don't know what the hell's going on is he leading the police to somebody's house so that they can arrest the people in the house it just seems like they're normal everyday people so i've never been able to understand this scene though the way that Beatty goes through the house and he stands outside and we're seeing him through the windows i mean we're going to get this framing of him outside a lot or characters outside because we're going to get that same thing with Paula Prentice and he's going to mention her saying that she lost her cat. So I guess he loses his parrot. She loses her cat, but that whole weird, like we're standing outside looking in kind of thing. It's a great metaphor, but I have no freaking idea why the cops are following him and all this kind of stuff. And there's this big argument that happens. Did you guys follow any of that stuff? I didn't, and I'm glad you said that because I felt like I, I felt like right after that whole sequence is over, I'm like, did I miss something? Is there a portion of this movie that did I like fall asleep for half? A, I, I it just felt like nothing really connected there. It was just kind of like a little weird filler. 
there are portions of this film that feel like they're missing things or that the connective tissue isn't necessarily there. But then there are other points where I'm just Paul like, Apprentice is a big yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs> Paul Apprentice is a big one. She just kind of shows back up and is is scared for her life and she starts talking about all these people that have been murdered. Boom. Dead the next scene. <laughs> like I that I actually paused the movie I was watching with my husband and I'm like, wait, did what happened here? And he was like, it, she said she was going to, you know, she's worried about dying. Now she's dead. And I'm like, but they're just like that. <laughs> just one cut and boom, dead. Sheet covered and everything. She is an exposition machine in the scene that she's in. Because it is just this whole thing of like, there's six out of 18 people dead that were in this photograph. And Arthur Bridges was drowned in this town called salmon tail and that's where austin tucker is now and i'm just like who's arthur bridges who's austin tucker and it's like i have to now connect austin tucker back to william daniels and i'm like did she even say his name at the beginning i don't know yeah it's just like boom 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 all this stuff happening and then he's off to the races it's just like okay she's dead now i'm on the case and then him meeting i don't even know the name of the character this guy that he rides a kids train with is this like oh yeah his like buddy who like gives him the information right who gives him the fake name and stuff yeah like i like i didn't i assumed that they were friends of some like have some kind of like friendship in the past but like maybe he's or he was like an ex-cop and Beatty got like information from him off from time to time for stories but ex-fbi agent is how he describes himself he's been non-ex he's been scrubbed from the records of the fbi so he doesn't even uh, exist that way and this guy is played by kenneth mars so he's probably just a crazy person he could be (laughs) they're riding on a kid's train together he says that there's no no record of him you don't guys don't understand he's they're trying to be inconspicuous right by writing the only two grown men on a kid's train that goes in a circle. And it's one of these weird things because this is Kenneth Mars and we've probably have all seen this guy a thousand times and other things. He shows up in things and you're just like, oh yeah, I know this guy. Like he most famously wrote Springtime for Hitler, the play that they put on in the producers. And he was, uh, uh, I can't remember the character name, but the guy with the fake arm in Young Frankenstein. So it's like, yeah, this is a known person. It's kind of like Anthony Zerby shows up in a scene and then he goes away too. And like even Kenneth Mars is like, oh, if you ever find out about this, let me know so i'm like oh he'll come back in the story at some point but he never does hey here's a fun fact about kenneth mars did you guys know that that know that he is the voice of king triton and the little mermaid oh speaking about movies that we're ashamed we've never seen oh my oh so now we're gonna talk about that (laughs) i see how it is i mean to be fair little mermaid is not a good movie kenneth mars he just appears is like hey i'm this guy that you recognize and bye from the movie forever well, Anthony Zerba does the same thing, and Anthony Zerba's not even credited in the film. Oh, he's, you're right. Yeah, he's in the film, and they don't even credit him. And I love his role. I love him playing Pong against a monkey, or sorry, against an ape. It's fantastic. I had him written down in my notebook because I name spaced on his name, and it just says monkey guy. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the more correct term would be guy whose face looks like a cat. True, yeah. true. <laughs> Anthony Zerba is a, one of those guys with a very uh, recognizable Oh, visage. yeah. And it, I love his voice, too. Well, in between those two scenes, we've got 
the whole him going up to Sam and Tail, and this is the only scene that survives through every single instance of book to screenplay to screenplay to movie. Like this is, there's not a whole lot that goes throughout these. And now things change a little bit as far as this goes. Originally, the character wasn't the sheriff that he befriends. Originally, there was another figure that was by the lake or the river where they go uh, fishing, all this kind of stuff. But it plays out, this part plays out very well to me as far as what happens in the movie. This idea of Frady going into this bar and this redneck coming up and uh, commenting, because we have to remember that this is 1974, which I was forgetting about because they're just like, oh, you're a girl. You know, pardon me, miss. And it's just like, what is going on here? And then finally I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess his hair is a little longer than theirs is. <laughs> just too well-styled hair for 1974 small town Americana. And they end up getting into a massive fight, breaking through walls and all this stuff. It reminded me of... With music. This is when we think that the movie is like a different movie than when it ends up... It's like Smokey and the Bandit. When he's riding away in the sheriff's car later, that music is fucking crazy. But this whole idea of the after he beats the shit out of this guy, then he goes over and is like, oh, you know, you should call the police. And the guy's like, oh, I'll do you one better. I am the police and this is my deputy. And they have this little connection, ha, ha, ha. And then the guy takes him home for dinner and starts talking about his friend who is dead and Austin Tucker. And, you know, let's go over there tomorrow and we'll take a look at this. And, like, big friendly guy. And then once they get to the river, it's like, oh, I'm sorry. There was no night deputy who I told you about in the previous scene. I'm going to have to shoot you and, and kill you. And then there's a really way too quick cut of Frady slashing this guy across the face with a fishing pole <laughs> and a big, massive fight as a, uh, the, that's Frady's first casualty manages to, to kill a uh, sheriff. So w- good on you, Joe. A bad sheriff though. But you know, blue lives matter. That's true. That's true. <laughs> We don't know exactly who makes it out of that fight alive. And then when we see the sheriff's vehicle, we don't know who's driving it until Freddy gets out of the car. So it's this nice kind of twist. And it's, there's a lot of those moments in this film. That's what keeps it going for me is these little, like, you don't know exactly what's going on, but we're going to reveal it. And there's a lot of moments of just beats of suspense. They're not like, you know, edge of your seat. I don't know who's going to get out of that car. Who's it going to be? But it's just like a small, <laughs> little, <laughs> just a little cliff, not a like a, a gargantuan thing. But then the moment when they're, when he's in the sheriff's house and the deputy comes in, the phone starts ringing, the deputy picks up the phone, and you can see both the deputy and Frady on screen at the same time, even though neither one can see each other. That's a really nice moment for me. And again, that's one of those moments where I'm just like, gosh, I wish I could see this movie a little bit better. Yeah, no, I agree. That that was that's a bit going back to kind of blowout. That that's a very kind of De Palma yeah. style moment where it's like you're you're seeing both those characters, you don't know it just pitting them against, okay, what are we gonna do here? And for that, like I said, the rest of the movie just sort of like you said, it was little cliffs, little little hints of like, oh, here's a little bit of attention, and now we're going to break it up with a silly bar fight. But that moment, I felt like the tension actually building for the first time, probably up to that point in the movie. And it was, it was like you said, it was a really nice moment. 
And then we have the requisite car chase, which is nice. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm kind of glad they did. There didn't. are fights and car chases all over this movie. Right? And that crazy redneck music that they're playing here is just like, what am I watching now? What's that crazy Warren Beatty going to do next? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as he's jumping. Stay his, tuned. after <laughs> Jumping his car up and then it freezes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, he's gotten himself into a mess this time. There's a lot of stuff that happens in this film that I'm like, is this trying to kind of be like playing on American film a little bit of the 70s and trying to like expand the gamut of those kinds of films? Because you have like a Smokey and the Bandit style chase in this scene. It's like, why would they put this in the film otherwise if they weren't just like, we need to have something in the film like this. So let's just do something that's kind of like something else we've seen. But there's like, there's no reason for it, especially with that music that just... God awful music. Jugs in the background blowing on the jugs and hitting the washboards with their spoons. I mean, I this movie shifts suspect. tone a lot. Yeah, it, it's really kind of strange and and took a little bit of getting used to for me. Where it's just like, okay, sometimes this is sort of a slapsticky, weirdly funny movie, but then you're with what you're talking with what they're talking about, the assassination and the conspiracy and what ends up happening to, to Joe Frady is just, it's almost teeters a line of like a dark comedy, like a really dark, really placid comedy. <laughs> right. It's not winter kills dark comedy, but it's its own brand of dark comedy. It's all slapsticks until the main character gets shotgunned in the fucking head. And then it's hilarious. This is where I look at this film and I'm like, I, I, I've been enjoying this film, but I would much rather watch Blowout because Blowout's tone is consistent, which is strange because, I mean, you look at a film like All the President's Men and that film's tone is pretty consistent throughout. And this film, it's like, but this is all over the place. This is like the fun version of All the President's Men. It's, I don't know. I could have done without some of the kind of over the top stylistic choices that like there's something to be said for just kind of committing to a stylistic choice but at the same time there's also something to be said for not overdoing it to the point where it becomes distracting for the audience so i mean there there's the one big thing that's pops to my mind when when we're talking about this and that is the weenie wagger weenie wagger the weenie wagger that is what kenneth mars gives to Joe Frady, when he says, you can be this guy, uh, you can be Richard Parton, I think. He's he's the weenie wagger, so the guy who likes to expose himself in public. Some of those terms haven't aged well. That's right out of a, um, a James Elroy book for me, so I was just like, oh yeah, I know weenie wagger. I laughed my ass <laughs> off when he said that. In this child's train that they're riding around in, and he says that, and I'm like, what? kind of movie is this exactly what kind of film is this where a man is playing pong against a monkey it's just again there's a lot of stuff that goes on in this film that i'm like i i i don't think this was necessary this feels like you're spinning your wheels a little bit maybe let's get to the interesting conspiracy theory plot so we can say all that but i still think that this car chase actually speaks to the metaphor of the film which is this whole idea of looking and being looked at and trying to see things you know with your own eyes seeing as believing because even when frady goes into that house that i talked about before where he's looking for his parent parrot 
looking on the TV, there's this whole thing of like, look what you could win. Look at this. And so it's just like all of these instructions to look at stuff. And even here, when he's in this car chase, there's a, a pretty major moment where his car gets all sprayed with mud and he can't see anything. And he's trying to clear the windows and he's looking out the side and everything. So his vision is obscured. Again, I'm reading way too much into this, but I think that there's a whole theme of seeing and not being able to see things, figuring stuff out as far as this goes, because we're really constantly being told to look at things. And even when he goes in and he meets with Dr. Schwarzkopf, the Anthony Zerby character, they're in this great room where it's just all windows around. And it's this like almost like a panopticon kind of thing that we're going to see again in like the exorcist too, where we've got, you know, Ernie, the uh, psychopath taking the test for Freddy in one room. And then we can see Zerby all the way on the other side of the room. And I like that whole idea of rather than, Zerby and and Beatty sitting down and taking this test together. Why don't we give this test to an actual person who you know murdered people and then give those answers to the Parallax Corporation? We'll see how you do. And obviously, he passes with flying colors, which is disturbing. <laughs> this is also where we get a lot of great framing as far as like characters being all the way to the right of the frame, all the way to the left of the frame, switching places and stuff. And we're going to get a lot more of that, especially in Freddy's apartment or hotel room later on, where we're constantly getting characters shifting from one side to another. And then we finally get Austin Tucker coming back into it. And this whole weird quasi-homosexual relationship that he has with his bodyguard. I mean, were you guys picking up on this stuff? Like, the first few times I watched it, I was like, something is different here, but I'm not quite sure what's going on. Reading the other scripts, and reading more about the other versions of the scripts where both of them did explicitly write Austin Tucker as gay, as homosexual in that original version, I think that a lot of that just kind of carried over, which is, I mean... I guess that's one of the few things that carried over. So I'm not, I don't know. I guess that would be a good reason for him to want to, aside from, you know, being hunted by the Parallax Corporation, they would probably use that against him being that it's 1974. Yeah, in some versions of the script, especially the David Geiler version, he was a screaming queen. And so they really toned it down for this, which I'm glad for. And Geiler used a couple of pejoratives in his script, which I was just like, wow, this is really not very nice. So it was like the gay panic was thick in his screenplay. So another reason not to like that guy. I'm telling you, there you go. He's just giving me more reasons. I like, again, the way that this is filmed with William Daniels getting a one shot and Warren Beatty getting a one shot and them not being framed together for the longest time, because there is that physical distance between their points of view going on. And the way that Daniels tears him down with that whole, you're a third rate journalist from Oregon or wherever the hell you're from. It's just like, Ooh, that's really nice. (laughs) Yeah. It's really like a nice bitchy little. And finally they do get together and they go on Tucker's boat. And again, this like bodyguard Tucker relationship, I guess it kind of reminds me of like the bodyguard who is played by David Prowse um, in uh, Clockwork Orange and just that kind of relationship that's going on there. But, and that's when he shows him some photographs and shows him the, one of the bus boys. And I, I 
think that he showed him both of the bus boys that were involved in this. One of them's dead, who fell off the space needle, but the other one's still at large. And then there's that weird moment where those two, the bodyguard and Tucker, are sitting in the back of the boat, and they're talking to each other, whispering to each other, and then Freddy's all the way up the front of the boat, again being distanced physically, and then this explosion happens. And when that happened, I was reminded of that speech that Hitchcock gives about, what is it, suspense versus mystery, right? There's always been this dispute between suspense and surprise. There might be a bomb under this table. And we are having a very innocuous conversation. But suddenly, boom, this thing goes up. The audience are shocked. It has been very, very dull. The shock will last 15 seconds. The shock will ease off minute, two minutes, and that's that. Now we go to the other version. The bomb is under the table, and the audience are shown that it is there at the beginning. They have been told, probably by uh, the anarchist, that it's time to go off at one o'clock. There's the clock. The conversation, which was so dull, because the audience are saying, Parce que se dit, don't talk such frivolous things. Ne vous pas des choses tellement banales. There's a bomb under the table. Look, it's going off. This we play. Instead of 15 seconds of surprise, we can have 15 minutes of suspense. And this is one of those moments where it's just a surprise and you're like, wow, I did not necessarily see that coming. I was, I was surprised by that. That one did catch me off guard. I was sitting there, I was watching it because what I, like you were saying, Austin Tucker and his bodyguard are sitting there whispering and they like look over at Warren Beatty right before the bomb goes off. And so in my mind, I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, what are they, like, are they planning on something are they on like setting him up? Are they what, what's happening here with that? Because they look very secretive and like they're planning on something, and then I'll, and the boat just goes, and I I jumped a little. Well, I mean, I, there's no way that they couldn't have known that they were like under danger, right? I mean, that's the whole point of him meeting them out on the boat. I'm more surprised that he survived because he was just kind of at the front of the boat, and I'm not sure that's exactly how that works, but. I mean, again, this is film, ladies and gentlemen, so we have to suspend disbelief. But you could have you could have had a better way of of showing this scene because, but they could have just had him watching from the document like he was on the boat, and I was like, he got blown up, and then he's just like, I'm fine, or he at least got burnt. Yeah, there was one version of the script. I think it was the Godler version, where it's almost like they're on a speedboat, and it's. Not quite like the brakes aren't working, but it's like the steering is out. We can't control the boat and it crashes into a big rock and it explodes that way. But, but Freddy jumped out beforehand. But yeah, they needed people to think that he was dead so that he could carry on with this whole idea. And yeah, just have Hume Cronin 
be the only person that knows that he's alive because everybody else is dead or he won't talk to Kenneth Mars anymore, I guess. So for some reason, it's like, eh, no, that, you that information wasn't good enough. He doesn't need to know. And that's when he gets a visit from this Jack Younger character who is a representative of Parallax. And I like that moment when Beatty is burning something on the stove and he just overreacts and throws it and just like becomes that crazy person that Younger is probably expecting. I really like that moment. It reminded me of me. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> in the kitchen. Younger is probably one of my favorite. It, it, he, he might be my favorite character in this movie just because he just has the most air about him. There's just the just more complexity. Just everything about him is much more interesting. We've seen the landscape kind of dwarf people throughout this movie, but this is really where it starts. Like this whole idea of them at the Parallax Corporation and Freddy in this room and they're going to show him this film and they want I keep calling it a training film even though that's really kind of a misnomer but they're going to show him this film and get his reaction and apparently he's got to keep his hands on these things I imagine it's like a biometric kind of thing that they're doing and he is so small in the frame and that's one of the first times that we really get him as being very small and we throughout the rest of the movie there are going to be so many times where he is dwarfed by the landscape or the landscape is just weird like the outside of the parallax building is just bizarre the way that it almost looks like it's melting it almost looks like yeah like uh gaudi or somebody designed this thing the way that it's like waves outside i mean even like the first scene in the space needle when they're on top of the space needle outside looks it's framed in a really weirdly oval way with just like the blocking, the whole screen sort of becomes an oval. You know, and I just thought about that too, because the way I talked about how Frady was outside looking in that window, the way that Paula Prentice is outside looking in, the way she has to come through a curtain and stuff. And that's also when we see the assassination at the beginning, it happens outside and we are looking inside and seeing the senator or the candidate being murdered that way rather than us being inside with him. So we see the the assassination almost through their eyes and see it from outside. It's almost like it's on a television screen. Yeah, exactly. That Yeah, that's exactly how I felt, like an old 60s, 70s style television screen. This training film, I love this. And this was one of the moments that why I fell in love with this film is because of this whole montage. And then I've, I've read different things like there was a an article where they're talking about like oh look at how we're put into Freddy's position and they never cut back to him like we never see him in that alex the large position you know <laughs> like turn it off turn it off yeah why are you using <laughs> ludwig van like that but i think that's because they they ended up doing this in post-production like they weren't necessarily sure that they're going to do it this way because every version of the script that i read in the in the book and everything the test was not done this way and obviously good luck trying to describe this in a book or in a screenplay because it relies so much on montage and this is just such a you know an example of eisenstinian montage and just the way that we take something 
put it next to something else, put it next to something else, put it next to a word and the way that the words punctuate things and repeat and repeat. And then we start to morph what those words mean and what those meanings are by putting one image next to the next one. I mean, yeah, you didn't know that you are supposed to feel like you're Thor (laughs) over and over and over again. I mean, it's really based on like the Nixon campaign re-election commercials from 72. It's like based on that montage style that they were doing there. But the way that they twist it and the way that the music twists as it goes through, it starts to add in, you know, some minor stuff as it goes through and just gets more and more sinister and starts to eventually start to associate, you know, there's the, there's the words, right? Mother, father, me, home, country, God, enemy, happiness, love. And eventually it starts to turn it into father is the enemy and killing, you know, happiness is killing the father. Mother is sex, you know, and it's just like that whole weird thing where it's like the, the mother and the son looking and then the, the picture of the uh, pants being unzipped. And it's just like, whoa, you know, like all of a sudden we are in really dark territory. Well, I like the juxtaposition of the earlier parts of the training film with the end. Because you're like, okay, I see where this is going. And then all of a sudden, like you said, it just kind of really jumps the rails completely. And it starts it starts going into the territory you're kind of expecting. If you know what this movie is, you're kind of expecting some sort of subversion of expectations when it comes to the training film. Because they're trying to brainwash question mark or like con- or like condition i don't know if it's brainwashing as much as conditioning i don't know i can't tell i mean or I just would- like an emphasis that maybe just like things that you're seeing don't necessarily mean what they mean right it's like you're showing these opposite phrases over pictures that would otherwise garner like a happy or calm or contented feeling so yeah, maybe maybe it's more of like a learning to like kind of blur the like see through the lines, see through the the facade of face value. Yeah, that's why I would be more inclined to think it's conditioning than brainwashing. Because whenever I think of something like this with brainwashing, I always think of the Manchurian Candidate, where it's like there's like a there's like a trigger word, and they're like activated, and so I think it's conditioning to like shape what you associate certain words with. And like certain like connections you make in your mind, but it doesn't seem to affect Brady at all. Does it? Or no, not? he doesn't seem. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so either. I think he go. He's. I think that he's pretty much the same. That he he acts anyway the same as he had been up to that point. I mean, the whole idea of brainwashing, conditioning, I mean, that is playing right into the whole idea of MK Ultra and the idea that Sirhan Sirhan, who murdered Bobby Kennedy, was uh, brainwashed. And there's the whole idea of the girl with the polka dot dress was like his trigger that he had done all this autonomic writing in his journal and all these things that he doesn't remember writing. He doesn't remember killing Kennedy, all this kind of stuff. So it's a nice way to play on all of that stuff as well and just say like, yeah, this stuff is going on. And again, it could be to help garner an assassin or to figure out who the next Patsy is going to be. And we don't really know from one scene to the next, what Joe is going to end up being, or he could be a savior. Right. 
Well, that's the thing because he because he ends up being the Patsy. I I don't know what the point of this montage is. That's like, and I I, I see why they put it in in post because I think it needed to be there. But at the same time, it almost feels like it it serves no purpose other than to show the audience, not to show the character. He doesn't seem affected by it. He's still he still is the same character when he leaves that he was before. It's not like all of a sudden he's just going through the motions as a character. It's so I don't I don't know. I, again, I I like that scene. I think it's necessary, but I honestly don't think it ends up having any actual weight to it when it comes to the way the last third of the film ends up playing out. Or again, it could be a way for them through the biometric feedback to know he's not actually one of us. This guy is an imposter. So it's one of it's another moment where you have to think to yourself, do they know or do they not know yet? Right. Well and again, I again I personally thought that they knew who he was from the get go, so maybe it should be I that's not the case until he comes and watches this film, and then he goes and prevents the plane from being blown up. That airplane scene is probably the most remarkable scene to me, because growing up, when we grew up, you know, and I'm counting you guys, even though I think you're, you know, I know you're significantly younger than me, Chris, but we're not used to this kind of stuff that's going on. I mean, there's so many things in this scene that are completely foreign. Somebody watching this in 2018, seeing somebody just walk onto a plane, having the stewardess come down the line and say, oh, uh, you're going to Denver? Okay, that's $68. Like buying your ticket on the plane? Buying your ticket on the plane? What the hell is going on? And then the huge bathroom that they have. <laughs> it's just like... Oh. There's no overhead bins. Stuff is just put up there. I mean, it's such a totally foreign experience. I mean, who who thinks about things like that? I mean, it's like you can't even get onto a train now. Like, that's something like I'll see in old movies where it's like, oh, you're going to Pittsburgh. Okay, that's, you know, $25 or whatever, or two bits or whatever. And then, but getting on a plane and just taking off and then paying for it in midair? What the fuck is going on? Where it's just like, well, I only have, I can only go one destination on this plane, <laughs> two tops. But since it's the seventies, I don't think we're gonna rely on that too often. Is that why they had so many hijackings around this time? I mean, this is the time that people are just like, this plane's going to Cuba, you know? It's just like party plane. And they even had that in one of the screenplays. It was like, oh, take this gun, get on a plane, and then tell them that you're going to Havana. And I was just like. Wow, okay, I guess you could do that back then because there's also I don't think there's metal detectors that he goes through. There might be. No, from what I can understand, he just like walks to the air like she just walks in the airport and walks on a plane. He's like, Yep, this plane looks good. Where's it going? Yeah, that's fine. Which is the way it used to be, best of my knowledge. That's crazy. You know, in the eighties, like we watch planes, trains, and automobiles, and that's a foreign experience now, where they walk up to the desk and they're like, yeah, I want to buy a ticket for wherever. And that is still going on, I think, even in films like Love Actually and stuff, and it's just like, that's so bizarre to me. I've never paid for a ticket at the counter. I've always ordered my tickets either via phone, via AAA, or now, obviously, through the internet. I don't pay for stuff like that. Well, now it's it's so expensive to fly too, though. So paying sixty eight whatever on the plane 
versus paying 600 at the counter. And she brings him his change. It's like now you can't even pay for a goddamn drink on a plane if you're using cash. It's always, you know, you have to use your credit card. And we prefer that you use your Delta Sky Miles card. You got to use those coupons they give you on Southwest. Well, it's just, it's one of those things where when you watch this film or you watch films from now, essentially the 90s and, and back, it, it's one of those things where it's just, it's a weird time capsule of like an oddly specific thing that people don't really think about anymore. It's like the whole flying process. It's a process now. It didn't used to be. And so it's kind of, it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting little time capsule in a way. That's always interesting to see and kind of be like, oh, yeah, that's the way it used to be. You used to be able to smoke on the plane. Which is just obscene. Yeah, you used to be able to have Nazis on planes, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, wait, I guess you still can. I think you still can. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Those Nazis were on a blimp, and that was the last crusade. And they were thrown off because they, they didn't, didn't have, have a tickets. ticket. They tried to buy a ticket, and they couldn't. No ticket. When we think about it, too, I mean, other than them dismissing Frady... And some incidental dialogue of like the stewardess asking him where he's going and stuff. From the moment that he takes the test, from the moment that the test starts up until after this bomb on the plane blows up, there's no real dialogue going on here. It is all music, sound effects, acting, all of these things. It's such a, a nice, you know, two scenes put together of that montage and then this whole thing and i really like the way that he's trying to let them know because just for listeners at home there's a bomb on the plane and he's trying to let people know that there's a bomb on the plane but he doesn't want to get caught obviously telling them that there's a bomb on the plane and we also find out that there's a senator on the plane and this is almost like a throwaway moment because they show a picture and they show that there's a senator on there, and his name is Gillingham, I think. And he is this other character, John Hammond, his rival. And Hammond, spoilers, he gets shot at the end of the movie. And if this bomb had gone off, G- Gillingham would have gotten killed. So it's like Parallax doesn't care. They're not operating from an agenda. They don't care if you know the, the red guy or the blue guy gets it. Just somebody's got to die, and they're just going to murder whoever. And that, for me, I feel like was one of the, not issues I had with this film, but one of the things that I just, I wasn't too keen on is that, I, I mean, the, the whole title is talks about the, the villainous corporation, conspiracy theory, what have you, of the film. It would have been nice if it had been, if there had been a little bit of motivation as to why they're doing what they're doing. Because it, like, like you said, it seems almost just, random. There's no motivation. They're just going to kill this guy or this guy. Who cares? Yeah, I didn't know who they were working for, who they were, like, helping or working yeah. towards. Because they're they're not helping either side. They're just doing whatever the hell they want. And to me, that it feels like a missed opportunity because it would be nice to kind of give the sinister corporation of Parallax a little bit of a I don't know. Yeah. Rather than just this kind of, like, they're bad. Just like, oh, it's just faceless, giant, bad building. Again, going back to Blowout, in Blowout, I understood what was going on and why. In this movie, it's like, why? Why do you want to kill anyone? Because you can't, you're not trying to kill just all the 
red candidates or all the blue candidates. You're just going to kill whoever the hell you want. And you're not a foreign power trying, like, seeking to overthrow the U.S., so... Well, I'm very much of two minds of this, because one, I like that we never really get an explanation, and two, I don't like that we get an explanation. Like, I could appreciate if they gave something, but they don't, obviously. Because in some instances, it's just basically like, we manufacture conspiracies. That's their raison d'etre, is we go in and we kill all these witnesses, so then eventually if somebody puts together, like, look at all of these people have died, there must be a conspiracy here, we've done our job. Or we just go in and we shake shit up and we are constantly like, you know, we're the, the sand in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench, you know, we're just constantly upsetting things and keeping the ground moving from underneath people's feet. It's like, it's like if you had a crazy tyrant who is sending out mad tweets every night between midnight and 3 a.m. And then the next day was just the news cycle trying to figure out what the fuck he was saying. It would be something like that. Not that that was, would ever happen. Yeah. I don't, I can't think of anything that reminds me of that. Sorry, I'll escort myself out. I've been fired by Disney. I do love the idea of using the napkins in that plane scene as like a ticking clock. And, you know, like him putting those napkins in. Will they find the napkin in time? Will they not? You know, this whole idea. It's really nice. It was. I thought that it was a fun. It, it was a good use of, of suspense, even though you, you pretty much know that. This plane's not going to blow up, at least not with Warren Beatty on it. He's not going to escape two explosions. Well, that takes us back to that Hitchcock thing of the mystery versus suspense, right? And this is now we know there's a bomb on the plane. So it's not like we're just going to get a random explosion again. So they've fooled us once with an explosion that comes out of nowhere. This time we know that something's going to explode, even though we get the cheesiest explosion in the world, which is let's tilt the camera or let's pan the camera over here and shake it like we're on Star Trek and have a bomb noise, you know, and that's it. <laughs> like you may as well just have some people like half fall over. Kind of reminds me of that scene from Freet, Chris, where the plane blows up and they're like, boy, sure. I'm glad I wasn't on that one. How many days without an accident now? Yeah. You know, I, I was I was actually, again, with the tone of this film being all over the place, I wouldn't have been surprised if they hadn't done something like that. Where you see the plane, like, on the tarmac and it explodes, and then you see Warren Beatty, like, watching it from the other side of, like, a chain link fence, like, ooh, ooh, close call, am I right? <laughs> again, with that moment of, I wish that I could see this movie better, it took me so many times watching this movie before I finally realized, like, he gets an assignment from Parallax, and they're like, yeah, you're going to be joined by this other guy, this guy named Ben Harkins, and he'll show up, and blah, 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 blah. And it took me so long to finally figure out that Ben Harkins is the deputy from the earlier scene, because he's so barely visible in these muddy copies of Parallax View. And I was just like, oh, that's why. That's why he freaks out. That's why he grabs a, a phone and a travel brochure and sends this guy to fucking Hawaii. I had no clue why he was freaking out so much. Yeah, it's not a well-lit scene. And if you're watching like a VHS copy... Well, and let's be fair, I think that must be the only thing that exists. Aside from you renting it, Jess, I, I guess there's 
every other copy is really bad. I when I looked to see if there was a better copy, and the one like Amazon, I think had one disc, but it was like outrageously expensive. And then I was like, that's nah. I'll just run it for three ninety nine. So it's out of print is the real issue. I think so. Yeah. And I don't think there's a Blu-ray of it. I don't think it's ever been you know scanned at four K or any of that kind of stuff. Give it time, it probably will end up being scanned at 4K. It seems like everything is getting a 4K scan. That would be nice, man. But it's like, and and of course, there's a film site out there called Parallax View. So if you Google Parallax View Blu-ray, it takes you to their site. And I'm just like, motherfucker, stop it. It's a conspiracy. It is. It is. But we don't know exactly what their aim is, so. No, see, their aim is that's what makes them so dangerous. They don't have an agenda. (laughs) I don't know if I like that though. Like that's like because I, I feel like that's what the movie's gunning for, right? Is who knows what their agenda is? They're loose cannons. They do whatever they want. Isn't that scary? To me, that's less scary. Well, like maybe their their agenda is to, like you said, they're they're shaking it up on both sides, so as to maybe keep the voters on both sides shaken up and and at each other. But I don't know for what greater purpose other than to keep everything divided. Manufacturing dissent. It'd be like if a bunch of Russian bots came into your favorite social media site. (laughs) It'd almost be like thinly veiled Donald Trump references. I mean, now for sure, after we get the scene that I was talking about with his editor listening to these tapes and this guy coming in, like, it was nice they set up this whole idea that um, his editor works late every single night putting the paper to bed and he gets food delivered at like outrageous hours and they get that whole like oh stanley the regular guy isn't here and then boom you know next thing we know there's the half-eaten sandwich the dead editor the the drawer full of cash is still there which is a nice thing but the tapes are gone so now for sure we know that joe has been fingered and this whole end sequence i mean the end the third act of this movie is almost exclusively taking place in this convention center, this Hammond Convention Center, I guess named after the guy who is running for president. And this sequence, I mean, again, we start off with this whole idea of Frady being completely dwarfed by the architecture and just the whole idea of this convention center. I mean, it's there to just be this looming presence. It just to have all of these, these shots of, you know, the empty tables with their red, white, and blue, uh, tablecloths to have these huge spaces where people have to take golf carts to go from one place to another because you couldn't necessarily walk there to see the police and the ambulance drive into this space because it's so big. And we have just. Frady up there in the rafters, like a little insect crawling around trying to escape. And all of these people on the ground can see him pointing him out. And then the people in the rafters are also going around looking for him as well. And I just, I really enjoy this scene. And yes, it's right out of the, of the Manchurian candidate or Star Trek six. Take your pick. I don't know which one is better, but you know, it is very much like that. Or I guess even um, the, the Dead Zone with uh, Christopher Walken. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it goes on maybe for a little bit too long, but I really do like the way that they build it up and the whole idea of the kids with their signs and holding up these different signs. The uh, the hapless tuba player who is one who puts the finger on Joe. You know, it's really 
it's a nice sequence for me, and I think it's a the nicely organized tables. Oh yeah, those tables are fantastic. Until they're run down by the golf cart. The real tragedy. That whole thing of them playing Hammond's speech and him just there smoking a cigarette, talking to the people, talking about his fucking golf swing. Again, president who golfs, that would never happen. Until Ford, right? But anyway, no, I know that Nixon also golfed and stuff. But um, And this was taking place as the Nixon hearings, as Watergate was going on. Like, apparently, when they would take breaks from filming, they would go and watch the Watergate hearings. So this was very, very in of the moment kind of thing. But yeah, them playing the audio and us still hearing the audio of this guy giving his speech after he's been shot and him his golf cart just listing into those tables. I think that is such a fantastic scene. It, it is, and I but I do agree with you. It does go on a little too long. Yeah, like five minutes too long. <laughs> I could have gone with a little less cat and mouse up in the rafters. I like everything that they're doing on the ground. I think like you said like all those little like bits of character all those different individual people and everything kind of bringing that whole unity of a a real time sort of setting up for this kind of event but the cat and mouse and the rafters i could have done with a little less yeah because it's uh, for me it felt like they were trying to take the audience for dum-dums it's like i feel like at this point i think if you have put yourself into watching this movie to begin with you know where this is going. And them being like, what's going to happen? Cat and mouse. It's like, come on. We know where this is going at this point. Especially, this is like, the film has led us here. There was only one way this film could end. And that's with Freddy going down for everything. It was like the completely 100% perfect ending for this film. But don't drag it out for, just unnecessarily drag it out. Because that's what it felt like. I really like Though, when they open up that door and it's just solid white, you know, it's like him running towards the the white light. That's a great shot. I just wish we would have got there faster. (laughs) And that goes back to the cinematography. It's just great in this movie. It's, It's constantly, like I said, with the tables, everything is just framed and blocked perfectly. It's interesting when you think about the end of the movie we have we have two parades. There's a parade at the very beginning when the candidate is coming in and before he gets uh, onto that elevator and takes it up to the top of the Space Needle. And that parade, it is strangely enough, it's all these Asian women. I'm not really sure what that has to do with anything. I didn't know what that meant either. But they're all in red. And then at the end of this movie, all of the kids in the um, yeah, maybe it is communism. And then at the end of the movie. It's all of these kids in blue. I was thinking, well, that whole like red state, blue state thing, like that's a recent phenomenon. So there's no way that they would do this. But actually, the whole idea of color coding the parties has been around since color television. So it could actually be speaking to that. Yeah, because that's what, then they do it for for elections. So you can see the, the map clear of who was winning. So like picking out the colors there. Though I do have to admit that red and blue weren't necessarily something until more recently, because even back in like 1980, it was still like a brown and blue kind of thing. So we might, I might be pushing that one a little bit. I know. Imagine that, right? You pushing it? No, never. 
But I do like the way the film ends, though, with Freddy going down for everything. I think it's perfect. And we ending with that bookend shot of, of the same thing of that, like you said, that that almost fish angle or fish fish eye lens where they seem to be almost leaning into you. It's like, nope, nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah, I love the security of the film. It's great. That it just it it ends right where it started, and I think that's awesome. I really really like. It. I mean, because the credits are showing at the beginning of the film at the initial investigation scene that looks identical to the other one. So outside of the intro to the film, which is the, you know, the Carol getting shot on top of the space needle, it it does essentially starts right where it ends, almost making you feel like everything you've watched didn't matter in a, but like in a good way, not in a bad way, if that makes sense. No matter what you're going to try to do, you can't fight city hall. It's weird too. Like the end of the movie, when Hammond is shot, where all of this stuff is taking place in this empty auditorium, right? Or primarily empty. And then when we have this council at the beginning and end, that is supposed to be like, they say like, no, no questions, but there's no audience there whatsoever. And then when the credits play, they start to play a March again during the, the credits. And in that you can hear the audience. So it's weird that we have moments where you don't, have audiences and there's music playing and they're playing the Washington post March and all this kind of stuff. And then during the credits, when there's nobody there, that's when we actually hear the audience. It's kind of a nice, like weird kind of twist that they do on it. And I have to say, Michael Smalls's music is really good. I mean, we, we were making fun of his like redneck country ballad, smoking the bandit kind of stuff, but that theme to the parallax view and especially the music during the montage is fantastic, but the actual theme, that kind of like doo doo thing that he's doing through it, really nice little subtle, almost like a tiny little, it's like not like sticking in a knife and twisting it. It's just almost like sticking in a little pinprick. Exactly. It's like a, almost a uh, an ice pick to the back of the head. And, you know, it's funny. I didn't really pay much attention to the score when I was watching it until I... And then after after watching the film and looking through all the, the stuff in preparation for this, I got to listen to the sound, the, the, the whole score from what you had posted. And it was... I was like, I, I don't know how I missed it while I was watching it. It just is, it's one of those scores that's extremely subtle. And I think maybe on the pond, like a second, third, and fourth viewing, it would become much more prominent, much more part of the story. Well, I was going to say, I'm curious about something. Talking about kind of the security of the film and the, the, it's the feed, you know, not the feedback, but the, the loop nature, how it starts where it, it ends where it starts. At the beginning of the film, the initial second waiter, or first waiter, is the one who is the patsy. But, he falls off the edge of the Space Needle by accident, right? Maybe by accident. Maybe did it on purpose, yeah. Well, see, that's what—that's kind of what I, I, I don't uh, understand here. So the conditioning brainwashing we're led to believe is supposed to make them want to kill themselves afterwards? I don't know if that's necessarily the case or not. Like, again, I don't know if that's conditioning or if it's testing or what it is. Because if he hadn't fallen off of the space needle, he would have gotten kid like he would have gotten arrested by the police. But maybe he had like, you know, an arsenic pill on him that he planned on biting had he gotten captured and then went 
Because, I mean, they run out on onto the Space Needle. Like, I, I memory serves right. They, he, he doesn't get, like, shoved out onto it, does he? No, he, like, falls off by accident. He, like, he crawls up there by his own volition. Okay, so, yeah, so he's up there on purpose. Well, I think that this is the only place he can escape the cops is what he's doing. That's true, but if he was really trying to survive, I think that he probably wouldn't gone for the highest possible point. <laughs> It's weird because he actually survived the simple script. Like they say, like he falls off, but then there's like a, a net to catch people because people would jump off. Because people the jump space off net. it, yeah. Yeah. They tried to jump off it all the time to commit suicide, but they had like safety barriers and up. But Sirhan Sirhan was caught and he just was like, yeah, no, I didn't remember it. I have no memory of these things. Oswald was caught as well. But then Jack Ruby ends up taking care of things. So it's it really just ties up a loose end sooner rather than later. Right. What what I'm wondering is, again, going back to the Parallax Corporation, I'm just trying to suss out more kind of what their end game is in the way that they use the Patsies. Because it, there seems to be, again, a slight disconnect with, are they just killing Warren Beatty's character because he was a pain in the ass journalist? Yeah, I don't was think that, that it's like he got too much information or was getting too close. I think it was just, he had the possibility of getting too close. And that's the whole thing too, with the title that they never really talk about in the movie and that we have to actually come to this movie with is what a parallax is, you know, and and for listeners at home, it's like to put it in simple terms, it's almost like the Doppler effect before your eyes. You know, it's like what you, when you hear, an ambulance go by, it changes its tone, though it's always the same tone. It's the whole idea of if I look at something from point A, I see something different than if I see it from point B. You know, and it's that whole idea of like, you know, did Zabruder capture everything that there was to see? It was one point of view in Dealey Plaza that day. What would have happened if he was 20 feet to the left, 20 feet to the right? Everything changes based upon that perspective shift. So what looks like, you know, uh, Ian McKellen is, is, a, is a huge wizard and, and uh, you know, poor Elijah Wood is this like little hobbit and stuff. Yeah, it's all forced perspective. It's all this whole idea of if you look at it from this way, it's one way. If you look at it from that way, it's another well, I'm a fan of endings that are bleak, and this film's ending is bleak. And I I do appreciate that, because I don't think a film like this would have an ending like this in this day and age. No. I mean, there are films that have endings like this. Uh, like that was a Roman Polanski film. Was it Polanski, that Ghost Rider film from a couple years back, where the, the main character ends up getting like run down in the middle of the road? But it's like... More often than not, films, uh, especially American-made films now, don't have these uh, endings of bleakness and, you know, no, you know, the villains win or the, the baddies win in the end. And I like that, personally, because it's a much more interesting than, and then the whole thing was exposed. Yeah, well, that's not even how that works. Yeah, there was a movie out a few years ago with Clive Owen and Naomi Watts called The International that is kind of similar and also ends a little uh, bleak, though not necessarily as bleak as this. When you think about it and you think about the brainwashing, you think about the whole idea of like somebody being set up like a Manchurian candidate. I mean, this is right out of Zoolander. So I really think that the Parallax View took a lot from Zoolander. Yeah, that's clearly what this movie was inspired by was Zoolander. But to Chris, to your point, I mean, talking about uh, Polanski, I mean, this was 
coming out the same year as Chinatown, which is another, you know, Rolo Tomasi, the guy who gets away with it kind of thing. It's just like, you can try to fight City Hall, but it's not going to work because the corruption, the roots of evil just go way too deep and you're never going to get there. Well, and what I like about this film is that unlike with some of those other films, it's like there's like a chance that someone could figure out what was going on in the end, past the end of the film somehow. In this film, there's no way. Everything is gone. It's like the X-Files. It's like the cigarette smoking man comes and scrubs everything. It's like, it's all gone. I don't even know what you're talking about. And I, I really like that. It's in line with the tone of the movie. And if they had copped out for a really cheap ending, I probably would not have liked this film as much as I did. I think it was in danger of going either way, though. I mean, given the tone shifts all the time, it could have very easily, I think, ended up with a more optimistic end but yeah no i i definitely prefer the bleak and i mean you know keep going back to blowout blowout's got one of the bleakest endings what i really would have liked is in this film he runs out of the door and all of a sudden that redneck music starts playing again hops in a car takes off we're heading for mexico they'll never find us there and that's the end of the film tune in next week when they find warren Beatty in mexico That's when he joins Alabama on the beach down there and then tim robbins shows up andy dufresne All right, we're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First, we're going to hear from Austin Tucker himself, William Daniels, along with his wife, Bonnie Bartlett. Then we'll hear the author of Conspiracy Films, A Tour of Dark Places in the American Conscious by Barna William Donovan. And finally, we'll hear from the director and writer of RFK Must Die, Shane O'Sullivan. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. (laughs) And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, <laughs> tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. They're the movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drugged up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Mass Arts, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. You know, the girl from that, the, yes, the, yes, I know show on that. I know exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. The the hair was it, it was different, and she has the the, the, the lips. She has the lips with the okay. Yeah, wait, the, she, no, she was just okay. You've seen her a million movies. You know, but the, who, but the one that, we're talking about the exact same person. <laughs> always suck as bad as this but listen to me chris gore and anthony ray bench on the film threat podcast you got questions sometimes we have the answers i'm chris cooling from forgotten tv 
and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from Austin Tucker himself, the mysterious man who went to Salmon Tail. That is Mr. William Daniels, along with his wife, Bonnie Bartlett. Tell me why you're interested in the Parallax View. Well, I love movies from the 70s, and I love conspiracy thrillers, so this is kind of uh, the best of both worlds. This is right up there with the conversation for me. Uh Oh, yeah. Have you spoken to Warren? I have not, no. I would love to, but uh, I think I'm I'm, uh, too small of a fish in a very large sea. Don't pay any attention to him, although he's a pal of mine, but I say that affectionately. Yeah, he's still cranking out the hits these days. What hit? I guess the last one was, was quite a, a few years ago. Yes. It was a bomb. What was a bomb, Bonnie? His last movie. Oh. The one, he, he wanted to do that, you know, that he did that thing on Howard Hughes. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. was not successful. Uh-huh. Well, how long ago was the Parallax View? I want to say that was 74 that came out. Okay, so that's 40 years ago or that something? That sounds right, Bill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Memory fades fast with we me, have a but, friend uh, we have a friend here in Santa Barbara who who was in the movie Betty oh, remember Betty? I don't know why maybe she was a friend of Pakula's or something anyway, she always says, "Oh Billy, we were in the movie together uh, oh really <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought it was a great movie too, you know, because I'm also love conspiracy things, <laughs> and right now we're in the middle of a lot of conspiracies. <laughs> So it's who knows what's going on. Nobody, you know, so it's quite, uh, it didn't quite make it, but it was awfully close. Mm -hmm. What were your memories of the experience and especially working with uh, Alan Pakula? I mean, he was such a, he was at the top of his game at that point. Well, he was, um, he was a very easy director to work for. Uh, By that, I mean, he doesn't uh, give you line readings or anything like that. He, uh, he, he casts very carefully and then he lets those actors do their own things, uh, because that's exactly what, why he cast them. <laughs> so, uh, I, I played this, uh, schmuck, I guess you'd call him. Uh, anyway, I, there isn't much I remember except I do remember sitting on a boat with, uh, Warren. Camera crew was on shore, so they were doing shots out there. And one of the shots uh, after we got off the boat was they were going to blow up the boat, and we all watched that. But sitting on the boat with Warren, he talked a lot, um, mostly about women, actually, and all the women that he had uh, known. Uh, I'll put it that politely. But he's an e- he was an easy guy to work with. And when I see him now, uh, first of all, he knows Bonnie very well because he uh, was on t- uh, television in New York with Bonnie. Uh, it was a show called Love of Life. I think it was his first job in New York. Yeah, he, he was, was very just, young. Yeah, he was very and young. very full of himself. And I just remember telling him once. I just remember telling him once, boy, somebody told you you were you were pretty once, and you've never <laughs> forgotten it, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of had to put him down a bit. But he's just a wonderful director. Mm -hmm. He did did that wonderful movie. Bill was in it. And he's always been absolutely darling to us. Mm -hmm. He's really, really been darling. She was speaking about Reds, which he directed. But getting back to the Parallax view, um, you know, I I didn't know... uh, 
Alan Pakula or anything like that, although we became friendly and I see him occasionally, accidentally, but occasionally. Uh, and uh, it was a very pleasant shoot. Uh, we, I think we went up to Seattle yeah. and up into the uh, Needle, and uh, that was interesting. And uh, it was an, an easy shoot for me. You guys have been married for, gosh, since what, 1951? Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, we were together three years before that. Oh, okay. How did you two end up meeting? Northwestern. Northwestern University, Evanston, Illinois. We were freshmen. Both of us were freshmen, but Bill had been in the Army. So he was two years older because he'd spent two years in the Army. Mm-hmm. Bill, if memory serves, you were kind of a, a showbiz kid, if 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 the, if I'm right yes. remember that. How about you, Bonnie? Uh, no, I was a uh, Midwestern, typical Midwestern girl, well, not typical, but, you know, Midwestern girl always wanting to be an actress and uh, wherever I could, whenever I could, and uh, went to Northwestern, and that's where I met Bill. Uh, and then we, and I mean, my, from the time I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, I knew I was going to go to New York. That was headed to New York. That's where I wanted to go. Yeah. Theater in the theater. That's what I was only interested in the theater, and uh, and that's where we went. I never thought uh, totally different background. Bon, you studied with Lee Strasberg, right? Yes, that's right. And so did Bill. Oh, okay. So Bill and yep. you and okay, because I knew that you had been doing a lot of stuff even before. Well, before you even went into the army, or to was it the army or the navy? I was in show business for a very, uh, from a very young age. Uh, he was drafted, so he was the army. But getting back to the uh, parallax view, that was a, a wonderful cast. Um, it had Hume Cronin, I remember, and it turned out to be uh, a very interesting picture. I thought. Uh, I don't know if it did well or not. Did it, Bonnie? I don't think so. I don't no? think it was considered a hit or anything. No, no. But. Uh, Mm-hmm. But then Alan went on and did, oh, God, such great stuff after that. Yeah. Alan Pakula. Yeah. And it had such a horrible death. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Do you remember, was there anything that you happened to shoot in that that didn't end up on screen? I don't remember. Was I cut out of anything, Bonnie? I don't know, because I wasn't at the shoot. I don't think so. I think you had uh, the scene up in the needle. Yeah. And then you had the scene on the boat. Mm-hmm. That was about it couple of little things. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't think they cut out much, no. as I recall. it. Mm-hmm. I know that the script was kind of... I remember that they had a meeting, and I think you went to one of them, where they were kind of going over the script, because Warren was as strong as Pakula. Oh, yeah. At that time, yeah. Warren and you know was as strong... Uh, what do you call it? The... The no. muscle. He was as big a muscle as Pakula. Yeah. So he was very involved in it. Very involved. I remember, uh, I can give you a little story. Uh, I had a, a, a scene with Warren, uh, and we did it, and uh, we did it, um, you know, there were no flubs or anything like that. And then uh, Alan Pakula asked us to do it again, and so we did it again. And we didn't flub the lines or anything like that. And then he asked us to do it again, and again, and again, and I began to, 
the, 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 uh, I usually went and sat down between takes, and, but I kept getting up. And uh, one of the crew said, we were wondering when you were just going <laughs> to stand there and wait because he, uh, uh, Warren would go over that cooler and they would have a very quiet conversation and he'd come back and we'd do the scene again and we did the scene 13 times and I'd never been in anything like that and so much later when I was having lunch with Albuquerque I said to him what was going on there he said well he said uh, we were having a discussion and uh, I wanted him to get more emotional and he wouldn't do it so they kept doing it and doing it until he finally gave up because uh, yeah, Warren was not it. about to get emotional. He has his own persona that he feels his following uh, expects of him, and that's what he sticks to. Well, you know what? He's he's a really interesting talent. Yeah. Because he's really good. He's really good at what he's trying to do. I just don't think he always knows how to get there. But but he's really, I mean, God, Bonnie and Clyde was great. Yeah. And that was a good director, a wonderful director. And and directing Reds, it took forever, and I guess it cost him millions and millions of dollars. But it was wonderful. He was wonderful with the crowds. Yeah. Warren was wonderful with the crowds. Yeah. He treated them all like they were very much part of the movie, you know, and he got good actors to be extras. Yeah. And they were wonderful, and he believed in that. I mean, he's very, very fussy. He's very, very, uh, he's very detailed. Very detailed. Sometimes he gets wrapped up in a, in something and he can't break through it, but, but boy, his instincts are good. Mm-hmm. Always good. Yeah. I have to tell you guys that I kind of grew up watching you two on St. Elsewhere. And that was such an amazing show. That was a good show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was good writing, good writing, good producer. They had uh, very prominent actors asking to be on the show because they liked the writing so much. And indeed, we did have a wonderful uh, cast of, uh, you know, that came aboard uh, to do one shot. Uh, you know, to do one one episode, and uh, just because they wanted to be on the show, and it was a very happy experience for me because uh, uh, there was Bonnie and me, and uh, uh, we we were recognized. We, Ed Flanders, who yeah. unfortunately is no longer with us, but uh, yeah. Yeah. wonderful cast. I mean, you have to you have to hand it to to. Uh, Bruce Powell. Bruce and Tom Fontana. Yeah. And the Tinkers. Yes. Mark Tinker. And, mm-hmm. You know, they, they they have very good taste. <laughs> yes, they did. Uh, we, d- we do see Tom Fontana sometimes in New York when we're there. Uh, so we've remained in touch with him. He's a dear man. Yes, he's a wonderful guy. And we see Eddie. We see Ed Bagley. He lives near us in mm-hmm. the valley. Ed Bagley. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Junior. We do see it. He's a dear, too. Mm-hmm. Wonderful people. Yeah. Actors are wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know you guys, obviously, you worked on that together. You worked on a few uh, television movies together, and a few movies together, I should say, and some other shows together. Um, had you worked together before that point? Had you worked together on stage? In college. In college. We yeah. did Lady. We did uh, Macbeth. 
Yes. <laughs> oh, God, I wonder what that was like. Well, it was not so bad. But, you know, we did Macbeth there, and then we did some stock. Mm-hmm. We did summer stock and that kind of stuff. Yep. And, uh, well, let's see what else. I think, Bill, you came on Love of Life when I was doing that. You came on and did a couple of those. Did I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, But then when we got... The, when we have the babies and the children, we I kind of backed out and she was we, interested in being a mom. And she didn't do <laughs> so a anyway, lot of we work. got we no for a while, and then when we came out to California mm-hmm. and I began to work a lot, yeah. then we worked on yeah Saint Elsewhere together, mm-hmm. and we worked on we did a something out on a boat. I remember we were man and wife, and then we did uh, what else? Oh, and then they, they even brought me on Boy Meets World. Yeah, so I was on mm-hmm. that a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. We like to work together. I would hope that, that uh, you have a good working relationship so that when you get home, you're not complaining about your coworkers. Oh, no. No, no. It's all easy. That part's easy. Working together is easy. We have, we have no no complaints, and we don't... We're not, oh, the funny thing is, though, sometimes on the set, Bill Bill loves to say... We do approach this differently, and he'd love to say, "Miss Bartlett, when Miss Bartlett is ready, when Miss Bartlett learns her lines, maybe we can proceed." Things like that. Well, see, he, that's his humor. That's his teasing. With the, I'm so used to it, and and it's fine. You know, it's fine because I know he's trying to be funny. Yeah, but people came to you, and people, how dare he talk to you like that? Well, you <laughs> see, he couldn't do that with any other actress. <laughs> He, any other actress, and he would be on the carpet for that. But for me, it, he could do it because it was—it's just our way of of being. And on the Saint Elsewhere, I had an affair, and and the whole the whole crew, everybody turned on me like I did something terrible, and they all turned on me. And they said, "Why are you talking to this man? There's Bill over there." I said, "Because I'm going to work with him in the next scene." <laughs> you know, but Bill is over there. <laughs> oh, they all turned. You thought I was, was, you know, the Scarlet Letter or something? I mean, it was really something. It was very funny. You mentioned Ed Flanders before, and he has been a favorite of mine in pretty much everything that he's done. What was he like as a person? Wonderful person when he's sober. He was just a terrible drunk. Terrible drunk. And became so ugly. Uh, who are you talking about? Flanders. Eddie. Oh, Ed. The sweetest man in the world when he's sober, but boy. He was a great actor to work with because he uh, like. All good actors, he was a terrific uh, listener when you were speaking to him, and playing with him was uh, a very uh, satisfying. Uh, You felt the two of you had a rapport together, and a lot of it had to do with his listening uh, to you. You know, there were other actors, if you're speaking, they're thinking about their next line. That was not Ed. He was a good listener, and that's a good actor. Do you mind if I ask you some very nerdy questions about Knight Rider? Uh, uh, how should I best phrase this? I'm you curious. wondered how I got involved with it? Well, I, I, I wonder how you fit inside of the car. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm <laughs> <laughs> how that's I did joke. what? Bill, tell him the joke about the guy in England. Oh, uh I was uh, in England, uh, and I was signing some autographs. 
And this young, uh, well, he wasn't young. He was like 35, gentleman in a suit. And I was signing my autograph. He said, uh, sir, may I ask you? Uh, I said, sure, what? He's, and I'm writing his name down and best wishes and so forth. So I'm writing and he says to me, when you are the car, when you are the car, when you speak, uh, in the, where are you? When you speak, and I looked at him, and I said, "You mean, am I in the trunk or in my in uh, under the hood?" Uh, he said, "Yeah," and he meant it. <laughs> and uh, so I said, "Well, no, sir. I'm sorry to tell you that I'm in a studio <laughs> recording it." Uh, he kind of went away a little discouraged. <laughs> I did want to know the nuts and bolts as far as are you recording your role before they're shooting the episode or do you come in and sh- and do your lines afterwards? Before. No, I did. Uh, before the I problem did. was that I was doing St. Elsewhere and uh, that show at the same time. Isn't that right, Bonnie? Yes. Yes. But but I know that the a uh, uh, Hasselhoff said that the the one of the gals on the set would read the lines, your lines. When they filmed it, you know, and that that she would read your lines. Yeah, and then I'd come in, uh, or, or I'd go and record my lines because, you know, I was the car for God's sake. I thought, as a matter of it's fact, kind of amazing that it worked so well because yeah. mm-hmm. Hasselhoff didn't know what Bill was going to say. No, I mean he didn't know how he was going to say it. Yeah, Bill didn't know how David was going to say it. I would give uh, a line three different readings, you know. I I didn't know uh, whether he would be upset or anxious or uh, quiet or so forth. So I would do it one uh, one way. One uh, I'd give him three different uh, readings of the line, and the uh, I figured they uh, they could put it together to uh, the one that's most suitable for. speaking with him and I did it that way uh, uh, only because I couldn't uh, you know go out there I was doing St. Elsewhere at the same time so it worked out pretty well actually and and he just uh, did something I don't know how much of it I can say but he did something for a uh, Melissa McCarthy movie recently he did voice voice work for a Melissa McCarthy movie she she's just filming it now. It's funny how many times you've been Kit over the years. Like I, I remember, like The Simpsons and uh, what was right. it? one of the Lego movies. I mean, it's just or the video yep. games. It's just like <laughs> it's like the role that just won't give up. It's it's almost like that's right. It's the gift that won't stop giving, and it started out as a almost a joke for Bill. Well, yeah. How did it start out? He was a producer of a show I did with Bernadette Peters, uh, a 90-minute uh, show, and he called me, uh, so I he, he knew me and I knew him, uh, sort of, and he said, Bill, I have uh, a few uh, uh, lines I'd love you to record for me because I'm uh, taking this idea of a show to New York to uh, push for, for for a production, I said sure. Uh, I had no idea what it was, so I went over and he handed me the script. And I looked at the script. I said to him, uh, "This is a car." He said, "Yeah." I said, "And it talks." He said, "Yeah." I said, "Okay." 
So I started reading it. And he said, could you make it like uh, the voice of Ma Bell? I said, no. And I started reading. He said, could you make it, uh, you know, with a kind of an accent, of a robot accent? I, I, looked, I said, no, would you just let me read it, please? And I finished the reading, and I went away. I did him his favor. And about three weeks later, he called, and he said, well, listen, uh, you know, we sold the show. We'd like you to do the show. I said, well, you know, I'm doing St. Elsewhere. And he said, we know that, but we'll uh, work around your schedule. So my agent said to me, Bill, you can't turn that down, you know, uh, then work around you. So that's what I did. I'd go over there, and uh, it would take me 45 or 50 minutes to do a show. You know, I, I'd give them different readings and, you know, and so forth. It's the voice, the the character and Bill's voice and his, the way he speaks, his attitude, his persona, if you will, it just sells, and people like it. I mean, they just love it. And it, and the voice is, is just nobody quite like it. So whenever he does a role, usually they want him. You know, I remember a long time ago, I mean, there were things he wanted he never would get. But when they wanted him, they wanted him. Yeah. yeah. I was terrible at auditions. I I didn't have the right attitude. <laughs> you haven't had the right attitude <laughs> ever? Yeah. <laughs> You know. <laughs> You'll have to read the book, sir, Mike. <laughs> you got to get the book and read the book because it's uh, it's, it's all in there. It's, it's all in the book, <laughs> and I think you'll like it. I think it's very much Bill's voice. Yeah. Well, Bill, I know uh, Bonnie just said that you just did some voice work, and I'm curious, Bonnie, what you're up to these days. Well, the last thing I did was a wonderful show called. Hmm. Was that Better Call Saul? Saul. Yeah, Better Call Saul. Lovely, lovely show. Yeah, and I, I really, really was so happy to be on it. I didn't at first think it was a big enough part, and I thought, oh, dear, dear, dear. Oh, no. But I enjoyed doing it, and I enjoyed Bob Odenkirk. I think he's a wonderfully different kind of actor now. I mean, he's just kind of special. He, He's really a comedian, but he's not a comedian, you know? He can do it. He can do it. He can make it all very, very funny if he wants to. But he doesn't want to. He just, uh, he's into other stuff, other feelings. And, and I, I admire him a lot. I also worked with P, Key and Peel, you know, and those guys are interesting. Really, I'm, I've been so lucky to work with some of these young, you know, different people. And, uh, they, they were, they're so interesting and I enjoyed Get Out so much. So, uh, yeah, and they're, they're wonderful guys. I, I'm lucky to have worked with some of these younger, you know, really interesting new people. Well, hey, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate your time. This has been truly oh, an sure. honor to speak to you. Well, I hope it's been helpful. And I wish they'd make more movies like uh, Parallax UI. Yeah, yeah. Aren't, they're so fascinating, you know. They try, uh, Television Television is, is doing a pretty good job. Netflix and all those things, they're doing a pretty good job. But not great. All right, next up, we are going to hear from Barna William Donovan, the author of Conspiracy Films, A Tour of Dark Places in the American Conscious. How did you come to write about conspiracy films? 
one time I was watching this uh, this miniseries on the Sci-Fi Channel about uh, the Bermuda Triangle, and as the as the uh, the film is going on, and as it's about getting roughly, I, I think about midway through or so, um, it re- I realized that the filmmakers weren't satisfied enough in doing something imaginative about you know what kind of supernatural thing could be going on in the Bermuda Triangle, but then they. T- throw in government conspiracy. And I always groaned when that was coming up. I thought it's almost like a, like a crutch. They're relying on, well, you know, they're not imaginative enough uh, in coming up with something really imagine, really, really over the top, something very strange and supernatural. But they have to go and rely back. Well, it was the government that did it. It was some kind of an experiment that was covered up. And I kept thinking about this, thinking that, wow, uh, that it, 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 it felt a bit like a cliche in that film, but that had me thinking that um, you have a popular culture, you know, so much of popular culture from novels and uh, um, uh, TV shows and miniseries and movies uh, that always are, they always deal with the uh, with the, the big shadowy conspiracy theory. So it had me wondering that, well, this would be an interesting thing to look at uh, closely and then go back and you know, trace the history of conspiracy theories and in, uh, in film and then uh, sort of expanded from there as I, st- I went back and started looking at the uh, the older films older TV shows and I thought that really what uh, one needs to do uh, when they're studying film or the history of a certain genre is to always also go and uh, uh, study the times that produced them you know so that's why the uh, the format of the book also came out the way that it did and it's alternating back and forth between a chapter on the films coming after a chapter of the analysis of a certain decade and what was going on in the decade, what kind of uh, uh, what kind of fears of corruption uh, people uh, were were really harboring, and then how that uh, was reflected in popular culture and specifically in films. I look at some TV programs as well, but I'm focusing a lot on the on the filmmaking. So that's how the uh, the format of the of the book came to be going on alternate back and forth uh, on the, the culture and then the art that's reflecting it. And that kind of uh, um, serendipitous uh, happening where I was watching the sci-fi miniseries, I got really stuck on this idea of, well, the conspiracy theory keeps showing up in, uh, in popular entertainment. So I thought, let me, let me take a close look at that and see how this has, uh, this, this, this genre has evolved over the, uh, over the decades. What is uh, roughly the the first movie that you consider to be a conspiracy film? The films that um, we've put into the into this modern uh, conspiracy cycle, because uh, really the uh, what I discuss in the book is that when you get into the uh, um, roughly into the 1960s or so, conspiracy uh, the conspiracy theories uh, change in an interesting way. That before uh, before the 60s, and very particularly before. Or the uh, uh, the Kennedy assassination, conspiracies usually focused on threats from the uh, from the outside, some kind of a, a subversive threat that's inspired by an outside threat, like say like the uh, the threat of communist infiltrators uh, during the uh, the Cold War or or Nazi uh, subversives uh, during uh, during World War Two. Uh, but then with the, uh, the 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 conspiracy theorizing changes interestingly uh, um, after the uh, the Kennedy assassination, where 
you know, the real conspiracy theories start fearing a threat from within, uh, that the problem might be that the real threat uh, to American culture is corruption uh, within the American system. You know, so there what, uh, what I was uh, um, seeing is that you have this evolution out of this uh, trend in uh, Cold War nuclear war filmmaking in the 1950s into the 1960s. And uh, one of the early films that I argue where you start seeing this idea that the threat is the system itself, the threat is, uh, is within, is the Stanley Kubrick film, uh, Dr. Strangelove, uh, where uh, the, uh, really the, the, uh, the message of the film is that the entire, the way the defense system uh, has been created, uh, it can so easily run amok that that in itself is the is the biggest threat. It's almost almost uh, uh, not even the uh, uh, the Russian threat, but just the uh, just the way that the entire um, philosophy uh, behind mutually assured destruction, the entire defense system, uh, has been created. So that's that's opening a door there uh, to this idea that uh, really the uh, the threat is something within the American system that you need to fear. And then you have these little um, these, these these little subplots and and uh, um, bits of dialogue. In the, uh, in the film that, that touch on some of the conspiratorial fears of the, uh, of the 1950s and the, uh, and the early 1960s. Like there's the, uh, um, there's the, uh, the General Ripper um, character who's afraid of uh, um, fluoridation and the water going and sapping the, uh, the vital liquids, the vital uh, juices of the, of the American public. So that was, uh, that was a fear at the time uh, that the fluoridation of the, uh, among some who, uh, who are, were given to a conspiratorial mindset and that, that water fluoridation uh, was some kind of a plot to uh, to poison people. You know, some believed there was a it was it was a chemical that could be used for mind control. Um, or with the Doctor Strangelove character, um, he was also uh, inspired by the uh, by the by the you know, project Paperclip after World War II, where Nazi scientists were were, were secretly uh, brought into the uh, into the U.S. to uh, to work on the um, um, on the, uh, the space program. Uh, so that's that's the first film that's really starting to uh, to touch on these themes uh, that the conspiracy genre is going to be uh, um, is going to be um, focused on, and, and then really then later on going and developing. But in the 1960s, I mean, really two films uh, that I would pinpoint would would even more so uh, help uh, work out the uh, um, lay down the groundwork for the uh, for the formula of the conspiracy theory film. One of them would be from 1962, The Manchurian Candidate, uh, and then the other one from 64, Seven Days in May. Interestingly, both of them are directed by John Frankenheimer. Yeah, John Frankenheimer seemed to be kind of the king of conspiracy films for a while until Alan J. Pakula kind of took that title away from him. Yeah, yeah, and then especially with I think Seven Days in May um, is such a remarkable uh, film there because it, it really um, lays down I, I think and, and in my opinion really lays down that uh, uh, that, that that formula the, uh, the the formulaic back backbone of the conspiracy film the type of uh, generic characters that show up the sort of you know um, archetypal situations the way that the uh, the plot unfolds. Um, where you have a a character who stumbles onto some small problem uh, where they 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 start 
they're looking at it, they're kind of picking at it, and it almost becomes like a, like a yarn that they're pulling on, and this big, complicated plot unfolds that goes and, and uh, um, uh, un, you know, un, unravels to, uh, uh, to, to major you know, acts of criminality at the highest uh, corridors of power. So, so that, that's, uh, that's very remarkable that what he did, uh, with uh, with seven days in May, a very good film. I mean, very much like the Parallax. You, I would argue, something that can be you can be re, you can rewatch it. Um, I think so many times, and it's and and it's always seems so relevant. Um, and it goes and establishes the uh, what would be this this this, this archetypal uh, um, backbone. This this uh, uh, the uh, the formula for the uh, for the conspiracy theory film that you still see uh, storytellers doing some very on to this day. In your book, you divide conspiracy films into roughly three chunks, which I think is really smart because otherwise it just becomes too big and too momentous trying to even categorize these films. I tried to get a hold of uh, all of the various uh, types of conspiracies that uh, that turn up usually within you know the, the real culture of conspiracy uh, believers and then the sort of uh, uh, sort of films that. Filmmakers then uh, then make from uh, make as a, as a as an inspiration from uh, from the real theories and yeah so so what I do, what I do there is uh, you have uh, conspiracy theories well, in, 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 in my view is you can break them down into conspiracy theories uh, dealing with like military and espionage uh, types of cons- conspiracies where you have uh, you know some kind of you know wrongdoing going on uh, within the uh, defense and intelligence uh, worlds uh, then you you uh, have stories where they're set in the uh, in the world of business and and finance, and then you can see the uh, where the conspiracy theories become really hyperbolic and they become really fantastic, uh, where they're dealing with things like like UFOs and and Roswell and cover-ups of fantastic otherworldly sorts of things. But which interestingly um, is also what you can see when you see the evolution of the, the real culture of conspiracy theorizing that um, they the conspiracy theories seem to always need to top themselves. They they seem to uh, uh, need to become you know more the, the claims need to become bigger and bigger and more far reaching. You know so when you go back and look at the uh, the post Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories uh, really well, really, the uh, the focus is on on criminality within the government, within the military, uh, within the, the world of business or, or or espionage. And then later on, you know, by the time we're getting into the uh, into the seventies, later seventies, eighties, then that's when the uh, things get really uh, over the top and kind of fantastic. You see the concerns over over crashed UFOs and and the government supposed cover up of, of alien contact and and things like that. Going back to political conspiracy theories. I mean, so many of the political films, they seem to start and maybe end with John F. Kennedy and the Kennedy family. I mean, even just recently, we had Chappaquiddick uh, playing in movie theaters. When was the first time that we got a Kennedy conspiracy on film that you know of? Yeah, the 
first one uh, was a film called Executive Action uh, from 1973, uh, where, interestingly enough, to, uh, uh, exactly to the decade, uh, 10 years after the, uh, the real, uh, after the real Kennedy assassination, Hollywood directly uh, goes in and takes on the, uh, the assassination. And uh, interestingly enough, it, it was uh, produced by, and it's, uh, it's starring Burt Lancaster, um, who was uh, also in Seven Days in May. And what I, I thought was, was so uh, fascinating, I would highly recommend the film. It's one of the those uh, um, forgotten uh, little little gems, like I think from the early seventies, uh, where um, while the uh, while while the archetypal formula of the uh, of the genre is uh, is emerging after Frankenheimer laid down with Seven Days in May, um, here this film goes and kind of inverts it, where the uh, the structure of the film is it's almost documentary style, uh, where it's all told from the point of view of the conspirators. Uh, so it's, it's almost like somebody is it's almost like a fake um, reality uh, program, like a fake documentary of how the the conspirators went about uh, assassinating John F. Kennedy. But but that was the that was the first film there from uh, from 1973 where Hollywood uh, take, directly takes on the uh, uh, the John F. Kennedy uh, murder. But then after that, I mean, you said that's 1973, and then 1974 and beyond, it just explodes into conspiracy films. We are five years north of Bobby Kennedy's death. Is it primarily due to um, Watergate, or what's the cause? It's all of them. Uh, I would say it's, it's really a, a combination of a lot of cultural factors uh, going on there. Because, yeah, 1973 with executive action, 1974 – you have parallax view and and the conversation is also in seventy four. Um, you have three days of the Condor in seventy five. Really, the uh, the floodgate there opens and and the Hollywood takes on conspiracy theorizing and and yeah, it, the, the films have to um, touch on some part of the zeitgeist uh, for them to to really hit a nerve with the audiences. And as and I would argue, it's a, it, it's a number of things that yeah, you do have a um, a couple of years. Years now removed from the uh, from the Bobby Kennedy assassination, uh, the uh, the Martin Luther King assassination, um, when the uh, the, uh, the public uh, sentiment turns against Vietnam. Um, this is also after the, uh, the Pentagon Papers scandal, uh, where, which, by the way, for 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 anyone who's not uh, too familiar with that, the recent film The Post is a very good overview of of what happened there about the uh, the Nixon administration's attempt to. Uh, uh, keep this uh, this this long study uh, from being made public about essentially how the government uh, knew for for decades uh, basically that the uh, uh, that the American policy uh, in Vietnam was very flawed um, and it will over and over again the conclusion of uh, what would happen if uh, the U.S.'s involvement in Vietnam keeps building up where, where the study says that essentially it would it would it would turn out to be uh, the kind of Quagmire, unwinnable quagmire uh, that it was, and so 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 the Pentagon Papers case makes this public, and you see the way that the uh, that the U.S. government is uh, um, is covering things up. It's lying that that it knows that it knows that its policies will be destructive, um, but they believe that the, that the public can easily be manipulated. You know, so I would say it's things like this: the uh, the Vietnam War, uh, the uh, the Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King assassination. 
Commissions, the Pentagon Papers, Watergate. It's essentially one thing on top of the other, where the uh, the public is over and over again disillusioned by um, by by organizations of power. And filmmakers are able to step into this, and they'll say that well, this is uh, th- th- these are the things that we're seeing, you know, in the world every day. You turn on the news every day, you read the paper, and it's just one scandal after the next where you see this major abuse of power. It's essentially people in positions of, of power going as high up as the president, thinking that they can deceive the public. That essentially, they can conspire uh, to uh, to keep the truth hidden. So, so these films are really striking, uh, striking a chord in in in, in, in uh, filmgoers, and that's why we have this uh, uh, this watershed of one one really good conspiracy theory film after the other in the uh, in the mid seventies. When it comes to the protagonists of these films, I'd like also that you talk about how so many of them are private eyes, police officers, smaller cogs in a much bigger wheel, and reporters are definitely in that category as well. And that Joe Frady in the Parallax View as a reporter is almost a, a, a typical thing. You know, looking at that, looking at uh, Capricorn One, looking at all the president's men. I mean, there are so many reporters, and I guess because they have an obligation to keep on digging. Really, the reporter is that is that perfect uh, hero for a conspiracy uh, theory film because it is their job to uh, to uncover uh, information. You know, they're they're supposed to be the representatives of the the fourth estate, who are supposed to be uh, keeping an eye on all organizations of power. And also, uh, when when we're just looking at um, Hollywood filming. Tradition, you know, if you're going back to uh, like the 1930s, the 1940s, you, you did have this uh, um, uh, this this tradition of the uh, crusading uh, newspaper man movies. Uh, so, so something like the Parallax View or or Capricorn One, especially Capricorn One, I think, uh, the, the film about a faked uh, uh, mission to Mars, which I think it, it pays a lot of homage. And a couple of times, it does it very obviously by by referring back to the uh, to the old uh, uh, news crusading newsman films, uh, where where there the uh, uh, the filmmakers are are borrowing from a genre that has existed and has uh, been effective before. Uh, so now they're taking this tradition of the crusading reporter, somebody who might be small time, you know, someone who uh, might have been you know written off before as as as, as being uh, um, uh, somebody who's who's just out to chase a uh, uh, the most uh, sensational story. As the Joe Joe Frady character is a Accused and and parallax you that well you know you're just always looking to, looking for the next big scandal or something that's really over the top um, even if it, it might not lead to anything except for that one time where he's all, he stumbles onto uh, onto something that's very serious and a, and, a, and a real crime and a real threat to the uh, to the country but yeah but but basically the uh, the reporter is such a such a perfect character for this because we know that that's what they need to do uh, they need to dig and they need to to uh, um, report on on uh, um, organizations of power and influence. How about the other side of it? How about the people that commit the crimes or that are behind the conspiracy? Do they tend to fall into groups as well? Is it you know the obviously government seems to be one of them, but I'm curious who are the other power brokers and and the actual pawns in the game? Do they fall into particular categories as well? 
Oftentimes you have the heads of, of industry, uh, business titans who uh, might be the uh, the villains in, in, in conspiracy films. Like for example, with executive action, uh, the, conspir- the conspirators there are are heads of uh, your major corporation. And one of the things that they're really frustrated with uh, with Kennedy is the uh, the sort of uh, sort of policies, sort of liberal policies that might have uh, have an impact on uh, corporate America or some of the other. Uh, uh, other types of villains would be uh, military leaders, strong, hardline hawks uh, who are who are afraid that a certain uh, certain policy um, is going to be is going to make the uh, the country weak. Or sometimes you might have the uh, connection between the two. And oftentimes, uh, the real conspiracy theorists are talking about the military-industrial complex. And uh, you'd have the plots where you have uh, businessmen trying to influence government policy in terms of military buildup, in terms of defense, essentially to uh, uh, to increase uh, buildup, to create problems in the world, you know, to create a need for for another war or for, for, for new weapons, uh, so that in turn, they can uh, they can profit. Uh, so, so these are these are going to be many of the uh, uh, the major conspiracy uh, villains. You're going to have the uh, uh, the defense uh, slash intelligence agency villains, um, oftentimes in in league or even controlled by uh, the uh, uh, the heads of uh, heads of corporations, the uh, heads of industries, and and, and this sometimes you also see turn, turning up and even. The, the the fantastic conspiracy theory films uh, say when you're dealing with uh, with aliens uh, with uh, with alien contact where again you're going to have the military who is uh, paranoid about uh, um, information about alien contact getting out and uh, creating panic and the uh, uh, throughout the world so they want they're conspiring to keep the uh, knowledge of alien contact hidden or you're or you're going to have the uh, the military villain in a conspiracy film like that who want to get their hands on alien technology uh, to be able to build better weapon systems or the, or the business world that wants to uh, get their hands on the alien technology to profit off of it. Or uh, for like with the, uh, uh, with the more down-to-earth conspiracy films, it could be a combination of all of these. It's the military-industrial complex in league with the uh, businessmen, sometimes scientists uh, who, you know, again, believe that uh, you, the the knowledge of the otherworldly is going to create uh, create panic or or um, just destabilizing change throughout uh, throughout the world. Let's talk a little bit more about the parallax view as far as the villains and that because we never really learn who they are. Right. That's 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 why I like that film so much. That uh, and even though you have uh, the early days of the emergence of the uh, um, of the of the formula for the conspiracy film, where you're going to have this 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 plot arc of some lowly character. In this case, you have the Joe Frady character, who's, uh, who's the reporter, who starts uh, picking on the uh, on the story that nobody else cares about. Um, but then, in in, in the um, in the traditional conspiracy film, eventually it comes comes to a point uh, where uh, the uh, where the hero comes face to face with 
the uh, with the villains. It's almost like a, almost like a scene in a James Bond film where the uh, uh, the villain is going to go and explain his grand plan, but you never get that in the in the parallax view. You know that that's why I was so uh, really so excited by this film. I think it's just done so uh, so fantastically because uh, um, here it's all about the uh, the construction of the film is all about the point of view of the uh, of the Freddy character that you only only know as much as he does. Uh, during the entire film, so you never get out of his uh, point of view, and you never learn uh, why the villains are doing what they're doing. Which, in, in the case of this uh, of, of this film, there you have the Parallax Corporation uh, that's essentially creating these fall guys, these these uh, these Lee Harvey Oswald type patsies uh, for uh, uh, for assassinations, and uh, he he stumbles onto the plot, but he never finds out why. Um, and then we only know as much as as much as he does until the um, until the well the unfortunate ending for for Freddy uh, where he becomes one of these uh, one of these patsies and all the way down to the uh, to the very end of the uh, very end of the film all the people who have been assassinated we don't know why and we don't know why they had to die uh, the film starts out with an assassination in the uh, um, in Seattle on the Space Needle it's this, uh, I, I was I was always uh, fascinated by the by the way the victim is set up uh, that there's a line in there where where one of the characters says that well this, it's a politician who's uh, who's killed and they say that well he is uh, uh, he's so independent that uh, sometimes even Washington something to that effect Washington doesn't doesn't even know what party he belongs to you know so it becomes uh, um, it, it's fascinating to try and find out well then who would want want him dead you know maybe if it was an ideologue on one side or the other that that could that could uh, give hints uh, about uh, who would want him that the opposition uh, would would want him out of the way? But somebody who is so um, who's so um, all over the place ideologically and so independent, who could possibly want him dead? You know, so something like that. As you're watching the film, it's really drawing you in. It's really making you uh, uh, it's, it's, it's creating that intrigue about um, who who could these these villains be, and you never find out. And you know, just like uh, just like Freddy never finds out because uh, well, he gets killed on the end of the film. He, he he gets uh, turned into one of these uh, one of these patsies, and since he never finds out, you, the viewer, never find out either. Uh, so I thought that that's just very uh, um, uh, that was very audacious of the uh, of the screenwriter and the uh, and the director that they would uh, they would set up that kind of a, that sort of an unknown and it's and and the the plot the uh, or rather the secrets behind the uh, behind the bad guy's plot is never uh, is never revealed. To the audience, but I, I, would, I would also argue that really that's what makes the film um, also as as disturbing uh, as it is, because as you're sitting there, your imagination can run away, and you can uh, probably imagine things you know much more sinister and much much more uh, dangerous and far-reaching than anything that the uh, that the filmmaker uh, can uh, uh, can show you. So it's, it's it's almost like the concept of a good scary story uh, that so many times the hint. Uh, of uh, of a threat is is much scarier uh, than when the uh, the storyteller tells you, well, this is the monster, you know, this is the uh, this is the threat. It's what what your mind can imagine is always much uh, uh, much more disturbing and much more sinister uh, than what the uh, the filmmaker filmmaker can show you. There's so much of a plot of mind control in that film. Was that a common theme for conspiracy films, or is that kind of like a, a footnote to conspiracy movies? 
well, the, the idea of mind control and the, uh, or rather, I would put it uh, this way, the, uh, the perception uh, or, or the manipulation of perception, uh, that is really the, uh, uh, the underlying uh, theme of conspiracy films. Because uh, what I argue in the, uh, in the beginning of my film is, well, what do you have to do to differentiate a quote, conspiracy film from, let's say, uh, any other crime film. Now, you might have a gangster film, say, like The Godfather. Well, there's conspiring going on. There you have bad guys, you have criminals uh, who are making plans for, for illegal activities, but is that necessarily a conspiracy film? And uh, what I argue is that really the, the underlying theme of, uh, of a true conspiracy film is that you have criminality that is so wide, it's so overreaching. Now, you have a network of criminality that, that is so uh, completely um, ensnared the culture, everything from the culture itself, from the ordinary people all the way to all the, or, all the organs of power is that they are able to manipulate how you see the world, um, how you see reality. Uh, so, so definitely the, uh, this idea that you don't see uh, the world for what it is, that you have these, these uh, uh, faceless puppet masters behind the world uh, that, you, uh, that you see uh, when you watch television, when you watch the news, when, when you're taught history, or, or you know, when you're educated, that all of that is a false reality. That, that, that's really the, uh, uh, the, the, the underlying theme, I would argue, of a, of a true conspiracy film. And when you are putting this book together and working on all of these different movies, I'm curious, did you have like a big bulletin board with red string connecting all these movies together? <laughs> <laughs> at, at one point, I almost did. Uh, that, yeah, that, that's, what the, yeah, that's what the real conspiracy theorists usually like to do, or, or the way that we see them depicted in movies, that they go and put everything up with the, uh, with the, the, the red strings connected. And at one point, um, I was very close to it, uh, where I had to lay out the, uh, the decade. And you know what's going. I had these uh, these columns of paper at one point uh, where I had one column and then, then uh, several papers uh, laid down on a big table. Uh, that here you have the conspiracy theories in, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and then you have the films. And then how can you go and how how do you see the themes tying into the claims of the uh, the real conspiracy theorists? So I, I was pretty close to it. Conspiracy theories just they're fascinating. And they're also a little bit scary because you're always afraid, or at least I'm always afraid, that I might start to buy into things and I might start to warp my own perception. Did you ever have that fear? Oh sure, sure. That that um, if you, uh, especially, it's so easy now to uh, uh, to read uh, the the ideas of, of of the real conspiracy theorists on the internet. You have uh, literally hundreds of thousands of, of blogs and web pages and and social media feeds of uh, of conspiracy theory theorists or youtube uh, so it's all, just about every time a new technology comes about um it's fascinating to see the conspiracy culture immediately uh, um take full advantage of it so you can sit there for for hours and watch you know the flat earth conspiracy theories on youtube um and and or, or things like you know 9/11 was an inside job conspiracy theories or stuff like 
about vaccinations, and you sit there and you watch it and watch it, or things about, or things more plausible like the, uh, um, like 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 the JFK uh, conspiracy theories, and 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 yeah, they they can. I would argue they can start to uh, uh, to draw you in, and after a while you're thinking, well, wait a minute, so many people are saying this over and over again. Well, maybe there could be something to it, or or maybe maybe the way they're presenting this, um, these things can't all be coincidences that. Yeah, they are very seductive. I definitely agree with that. Absolutely, and it becomes hard to uh, uh, to stay critical, uh, to uh, to step uh, to step back from the conspiracy theories, which which I think that's interesting. Enough. I think that that's sort of uh, almost like uh, like uh, they're they're insidious. Do I want to use that word insidious uh, sort of uh, attraction? Is that on the one hand, uh, the language, just the rhetoric of uh, of conspiracy belief, is all about being critical of uh, um, of organizations of power, be critical of information that comes out of uh, um, out of the government or out of the, the mainstream media, or that comes out of um, your your textbooks that you're reading and uh, reading in school. So it's all about question um, every. Thing that you're hearing, um, yet at, at one point you need to uh, tell yourself, "Well, wait a minute. I now also need to question uh, the uh, uh, the people who are telling me to question the government. Uh, you know, when they're telling me that the uh, um, you know that uh, 9/11, uh, the, the government used a, a particle beam weapon from space." Now wait a minute, and there are you, you you do have a number of 9/11 conspiracy theorists who are arguing that that it was a particle beam weapon used from from space, and that at what point do you need to stop and stand back and be critical of this culture that uses the rhetoric of uh, of critical thinking and critical analysis? That you need to uh, go and apply that same critical thinking to them. You said that you covered a few television shows in your book, and I'm curious what kind of seeped in from TV. One of the major uh, TV programs, and that's interesting to go to, to see the uh, uh, going on and having one foot both in theatrical films and then and 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 uh, television, was the X Files, uh, starting in uh, 1993, if I remember correctly, uh, where it really uh, started the uh, sort of the, like the same way that you had Seven Days in May and Executive Action Parallax, you in the late 60s and uh, in the 60s. And into the into the seventies, uh, starting the conspiracy movement um, in the nineties on television when the uh, the X Files became the uh, uh, the hit uh, that it was. It first spawns a number of a uh, number of imitators and and. TV programs that are dealing with conspiracy theories, and then the conspiracy uh, movies are, are are following in foot. I mean, although you can uh, you can point to well, J. John Oliver Stone's JFK uh, came before the uh, before the X Files. I think the X Files was really that uh, that that motivating uh, force in the uh, in the 1990s. Where afterwards, again, you had this uh, this watershed moment of, uh, of conspiracy uh, shows both on television, and then the X Files in 19. Uh, Ninety-seven, I want to say, if I remember correctly, uh, they it was so successful on television uh, that uh, they had a, a theatrical film over the summer between uh, between its two. Uh, Television seasons, and then the uh, the show picked up again in the uh, in the fall and went for a number of a uh, number of more seasons. So that's that's I was always fascinated by you know how uh, much that was that that show was such a 1990s zeitgeist show. 
What are your favorite conspiracy theory films? Well, my favorite ones, I definitely would have to go back to the uh, to the Parallax. You know, that's uh, I think it's just an outstanding film because um, a good, good conspiracy uh, theory film has to make you feel ill at ease it has you it has to scare you and it needs to make you paranoid and it does it so well and, and a big big part of it is the uh, uh, the unknown that you have throughout the film that you never find out uh, why the villains are doing what they're doing uh, also seven days in May I'm very a very big fan of also Capricorn one from uh, uh, from 1977 that's that's a of the uh, those conspiracy theory films that I can watch over and over again, uh, the uh, the plot is that you have this uh, uh, mission to Mars uh, being uh, being faked because it turns out that the uh, uh, the life support systems on a spaceship wouldn't work, uh, so it's, it's it's easier for NASA to fake the uh, the mission rather than to admit that uh, they have uh, they have problems. So it's a very very good film. Also inspired by uh, by a real conspiracy theory. Which is still around to this. Day. I mean, I, I don't, I don't buy it for a moment uh, that uh, the the, uh, uh, the mission to the moon uh, was faked. However, it did make for a uh, make for an excellent film. Uh, so Capricorn One definitely, uh, definitely, it's, it's it's up there among my uh, my favorites. So let's see from uh, from from more more recent times. I thought the theatrical X Files uh, film was uh, was very well done. Also from the 1990s. Um, I'm, I'm always uh, um, I'm always really impressed by how prescient a film called The Long Kiss Goodnight. Unfortunately, it wasn't a very successful film, but The, the Long Kiss Goodnight uh, with uh, Samuel L. Jackson um, and Gina Davis. Uh, it was a fascinating film because it uh, sort of predicted a lot of the conspiracy theories that we uh, um, have people believing uh, in today, this idea of the, uh, the false flow. Black conspiracy, uh, where the plot is that you have the, this group of uh, uh, rogue intelligence agents who are plotting uh, what will look like a terrorist attack, um, and it's all a ruse to, in order to uh, get the government to increase spending on intelligence and on and on the military and uh, and the weapons. So, so that kind of idea is uh, what the real conspiracy theorists call the uh, the false flag, and then the uh, um, you have the the nine eleven conspiracy. Believers, which kind of like the moon landing, I, I, I'm not buying. However, with uh, it did it did create a very good film, and I thought an interestingly prescient film uh, in the uh, in the 1990s. Uh, this idea that the uh, um, a problem in the world is created by this invisible cabal in order for them to uh, for them to uh, uh, to profit off of. Or, oh, or conspiracy theory also from the nineties with uh, with Julia Roberts and Mel Gibson. I uh, like that film very much because uh, now you have uh, almost like a winking sort of uh, sort of a self-knowing approach to the uh, to the conspiracy uh, conspiracy theory film because most of these films are going to be very serious. You know, they're, they're, they take themselves very seriously. Um, they're they're setting setting up their scary plot. They're trying to uh, make you feel ill at ease as they should. Um, um, but by the 90s, in the wake of uh, things like, like the X-Files and, and JFK and then conspiracy TV shows um, all over television, uh, conspiracy theory uh, with Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts, it, it, it's sort of winking at all of that. And I think it's, it, it balances its very sly sense of humor very effectively. And that where the film needs to be exciting and it needs to be scary, it's scary and it, and it disturbs you. Um, however, you kind of also get the uh, the knowing little wings 
to the audience that hey, we're we're kind of uh, you know pointing out how uh, uh, conspiracy theories have taken over popular culture. Barna, what are you working on these days? Well, I have uh, branched off from uh, from only doing the uh, the academic uh, work on and the nonfiction work on films and film history uh, to uh, writing a novel. Uh, so uh, this year, I had the uh, I had a new novel come out. It's called uh, Confirmation: Investigations of the Unexplained, uh, where. Uh, it's uh, in the um, it's in the style of the uh, of the X Files and conspiracy theories figure into the uh, into the plot and in a pretty big way. Um, however, what uh, uh, what I do, which I think is uh, it's, it's it's different than the uh, uh, way popular culture has been examining conspiracy theories in entertainment, uh, is that I look at the uh, uh, the dark side of conspir- conspiracy belief, the uh, the disturbing, uh, dangerous side of of of, of uh, so much conspiracy belief running amok. Uh, so basically, the uh, the plot of the novel is that you do truly have. Uh, unexplained event that you have these 20-ton stone globes that appear all over the world, and science can't explain what it is. And so at that point, belief starts jumping in, and people all over the world coming from various uh, political or religious or spiritual beliefs, they all go and start grafting their beliefs onto the uh, onto this phenomenon, and they believe that they're right, and then every, everyone else who disagrees must be must be dead wrong and dangerous. The sort of uh, uh, sort of disorder that this uh, starts pushing the world into, and throughout this, really the most destructive um, belief system uh, that that grafts itself onto the phenomena are conspiracy uh, believers. Because I mean, really, it's it's uh, the more I, I'm, I'm looking at uh, conspiracy entertainment and then. Uh, Real conspiracy cultures, the more disturbed I'm, I'm becoming uh, by the uh, the real believers. So I wanted to uh, I wanted to dramatize this in uh, in fiction. Barney, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your work? Well, I have a uh, um, I have a blog uh, called barnadonovan.blogspot.com. I'm also uh, on Twitter um, at bw donovan. And uh, uh, people can uh, read about more of my thoughts on conspiracy theories, uh, more things about my uh, about the work I'm doing to uh, the projects I'm writing, like my novel, um, confirmation investigations of the unexplained. So people are are interested in reading more about the uh, uh, the novel, and uh, also uh, I'll be writing more about a, a project that's in another nonfiction project that's in the uh, in the works. Really, it's at the uh, uh, the early stages where I'm um, trying to edit together essays on how uh, the apocalypse and the end of the world uh, has been represented in films and TV and popular culture. So um, as the project rolls along, I'll be uh, writing more about that on my my blog as well. So Barna Donovan at blogspot.com. Awesome. I am a big fan of Rapture films, so I look forward to reading that. Fantastic. Well, Barna Donovan, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate this. Oh, Mike, thank you so much, and and it was, it was, it was fun talking about these uh, these films, and hopefully uh, people will uh, will be interested in the book and and the films. I mean, definitely uh, go and uh, and check out the films because, like we were saying, that many of them do hold up uh, so well.
last but not least, we're going to hear from the director and writer of RFK Must Die, Mr. Shane O'Sullivan. You have made several, several documentaries, but even before that, you were making narrative films, and I'm curious how you got into filmmaking. I guess one of my inspirations when I was at college was David Byrne in terms of his, you know, a bit of a renaissance man in terms of what he was doing. And I remember reading the script of True Stories, the only feature film that he ever made. And that was that kind of inspired me to go on and write some plays at college and, and get writing and and ultimately deciding that the kind of stuff that I was writing was more suited to film than it was to the stage. So, um, so I started writing screenplays. I started making short films. I went to film school. And I, I started writing original screenplays and, and trying to get them made into features and discovered, like many filmmakers before me, how difficult that process is. So in the meantime, I got married and my wife was researching um, some Kennedy conspiracy theories for a Japanese television program. She works in Japanese TV. And, uh, and and they were about the JFK and RFK assassinations. And it was the first time, even though I'm Irish and I come from a Kennedy-loving nation, that I'd ever come across the Bobby Kennedy assassination. And all the elements of it, you know, the kind of the, uh, the suggestion of a second gunman, the suggestion of a hypno-programmed assassin, a Manchurian candidate, the girl in the polka dot dress who was allegedly with him in the pantry and, and fled saying we've shot Kennedy. All of those elements struck me as, as great material for um, an adapted screenplay. So rather than doing my own original screenplay, here was something, here was a story that people knew uh, and that I could adapt some of these elements into a screenplay um, for my next kind of envisaged feature film. But in doing that, um, obviously I needed an ending, and I wasn't convinced by the official ending of the official story in the case. So in kind of research, researching what the ending was, that led me down another path in terms of uh, coming up with new evidence potentially of um, some of the conspirators at the hotel that night and some of the TV footage that was taken by some of the networks. Um, and, and basically, I, you know, documentary um, was the route that I chose because the evidence I was coming up with was kind of stranger than fiction in a way. So uh, instead of making a, a feature film, I made a feature documentary and a 500-page book to go with it based on the evidence I uncovered and the research that I did over a number of years on, on the case. And both of those came out in 2007, 2008, just in time for the 40th anniversary of the assassination. How easy or difficult was it for you to track down some of the original people that were there that night? Uh, I mean, this case, it happened in 1968, and here you are working on it in the early 2000s. The good thing about the case was that even though it took 20 years for the police investigation files to be released, once they were released in the late 80s, they were an incredible kind of resource in terms of tracking people down. So I think I was the first person in since pretty much the night of the shooting to interview Sandra Serrano um, on video. So I spoke to her in 2006, and she was the prime witness to the girl in the polka dot dress. So that, I mean, that was really fascinating. I think the fact that I was coming from outside the U.S. and, you know, gave it a kind of... Um, a sense that I might bring a fresh or an independent perspective to it um, helped witnesses like her talk to me. Also, um, you know, this obviously it polarizes opinion and, and people who believe that there was more than one gunman involved, like Paul Schrade, who was walking behind Robert Kennedy on the night of the shooting and has been advocating to reopen the case for years. And it was a process of winning the trust of people like that, uh, winning the trust of Paul Schrade, winning the trust of Sirhan's brother, Muneer, 
Sirhan's attorney at the time, Larry Teeter. So once I'd, I'd won the, the trust of those kind of people, and those, um, then you know they opened the doors to other witnesses as well. So that 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 helped get the, the ball rolling. But also to a certain extent, um, it's a leap of faith, and you have to kind of put your credit cards um, where your where your mouth is in terms of um, following your nose and kind of being guided by hunches and trying to kind of just start the ball rolling and um, and then see where the story's going to lead you. So um, so that's pretty much what happened. And uh, I think I got a lucky break because the BBC commissioned me to make a 12-minute film for one of their um, their main kind of news programs after about two years of research. And, um, and the same day, The Guardian newspaper ran a two-page story based on what was going to be in the BBC program that night. So the kind of the, the dual kind of stamp of approval of the BBC and The Guardian then helped me get a book deal and, and get a deal for the feature documentary and, and things were off and running. So, um, you know, and then it kind of took a, on a life of its own. Went for a couple of years in the wilderness. I was doing all this research and I wasn't too sure what the end product was going to be. That's always the danger when it comes to documentaries, I believe, is when you're making the documentary, do you have a point of view set out? Like, I'm going to prove that X, Y, and Z, or are you following where things are going to take you? And then you decide once you you know, get into the editing room, this is how the story really needs to be told. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a search for what's the best framing device, I guess, for the story. And it was very much the story of my investigation as much as anything else. So that's why I felt that my voiceover was kind of necessary to the story to kind of um, to basically tell the story as I experienced it as I went through that process. Um, but also, you know, I mean, it, it, there were just fantastic characters I met along the way. A lot of them had a really interesting kind of histories either involved in the intelligence agencies or being very close to friends of people who were and who'd made various claims over the years. So um, I think that's what kind of hooks the viewer and, and engages the audience is um, being exposed to this kind of um, very diverse and um, kind of salty a cast of characters and, and obviously them coming up with a range of different opinions about what happened and uh, and not necessarily coming to a, a pat conclusion at the end of it, but certainly distrusting the official story. One of the things that I've read over the years about the RFK assassination was the possible ties into the CIA MKUltra program. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. And because it seems to go from possible to science fiction really quickly and it's tough to draw the line sometimes yeah well i mean i think the the, the most recent work i've done on that is um actually a video called the real manchurian candidate which I, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it but um but dan dan brown dr dan brown of harvard medical school has been working with sirhan for the last 10 years in prison to try and recover his memory of the shooting and as well as, you know, knowing historically uh, about the research that the CIA has done in that area and, and, and filing court declarations to that effect with Alan Shefflin, another expert in that, in that field. Um, he's also gone back and um, he's looked at kind of the suggestion that there was anything wrong, you know, psychiatrically speaking, with Sirhan, which he's pretty much debunked from the work that he's done with Sirhan. And he's also looked at um, any kind of post-hypnotic suggestion, any evidence of post-hypnotic suggestions or an altered personality state that may have been created within Sirhan's 
psyche um, prior to the shooting. Um, so I think if you if you have a look at that video, which is available on YouTube, he lays out a very convincing case that um, Sirhan was hypnotically programmed um, before the shooting, and that essentially when he saw Bobby Kennedy in the pantry, he he was triggered perhaps by the girl in polka dot dress to fire as if he was firing at targets in the shooting range. Um, he'd been in the shooting range that afternoon doing target practice, possibly to uh, you know to gear himself up for the, for the event that evening. Um, so I think it's it's quite compelling that he was in a hypnotic state. The defense psychiatrist came to that conclusion. They thought he'd hypnotized himself to be in the pantry and somehow seeing Kennedy tapped into an anger he felt that um, Kennedy had made a campaign pledge to support uh, to sell jet bombers to Israel. He was a 24-year-old Palestinian, so somehow in the programming, that political rage he felt was directed towards Kennedy, and he was then put in place, perhaps with the aid of the government book's address, to be in the place to, uh, to, to fire at Kennedy and then take the rap for the shooting. One of the things that I found really remarkable about your documentary was the use of the original audio of the uh, police questioning of some of the witnesses and just uh, to have that material to hear the police badgering the witnesses was remarkable the, another remarkable thing about that is it was never never expected that the public would hear that you know i mean these 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 cassette tapes i think the idea was originally that the, these recordings would be made of all of the police interviews including these polygraph um tests that they gave to witnesses to potential conspiracy um, with the view that they'd have, they'd have a, an independent record to it if anybody needed to check it later on because the Dallas Police Department had made such a mess of the aftermath of the JFK murder in, in five years before. Um, so it's amazing that we still have a record of these tapes, but they do show that there was no objective look at, look at the evidence in terms of you know, witnesses to conspiracy. This guy, um, Enrique Hank Hernandez, was in charge of operating the polygraph and he just took the same line with every single witness. He, he basically tried to badger them into retracting their statement no matter what they had said and he just simply didn't have an open mind. They, it was an open and shut case. They felt they had the guy that they wanted. They didn't want to go, in, go into any, anything more complex than that and, and you know, fair play to Sandra Serrano. She resisted. She was only 20 years old at the time. He was, you know, as you, as you can hear on the tape, trying every trick in the book and she just, she refused to yield and in the end um, you know I think she went back to her aunt and uncle in Ohio because she was so shaken up by the bullying he gave her but in the end uh, Enrique Hernandez prevailed and the girl in the public address story was shut down after a number of weeks and then uh, Sirhan was convicted Having Sirhan still alive seems like a really troublesome thing. I mean one of your other documentaries that you've done was Killing Oswald which helps you know snip off some of those loose ends was there ever um any question as far as like was sirhan in any danger after the assassination um i think they were very conscious of that even in the immediate aftermath of the shooting um I think it was uh, Jesse Unruh, um, who was one of the, the campaign aides of Kennedy. That's what he was shouting. We don't want to know Oswald. You know, they, they were very keen that they wanted this guy to live and go through a trial and go through a full process. So I don't think there have been any serious threats. I mean, obviously, 
being in California prison um, with this kind of conviction hanging over his head, uh, he's, there's always some sort of threat in terms of other prisoners getting at him. Um, but, you know, he's, he's got through it fairly unscathed over the years. I think the fact that he's still alive um, just does make it a much stronger case in terms of justifying why we're still researching it. Because, you know, we have a guy who's been in prison for over 50 years for a crime he can't remember committing. In any, in any normal case, he would have been paroled by now because he's been eligible for, for parole since the early 80s. Um, but because it's such a political case and it's so highly charged in terms of a, a 24-year-old Palestinian assassin, and, you know, seen as a, even though he sees himself as a political prisoner in a way, you know, there, there, there's very little political will to uh, to have a fresh look at the case or to see him released at all before he before he dies. So what is it about the 1960s and especially the late 60s that you find so interesting? Because some of your other documentary work, I mean, particularly Children of the Revolution, but even things like Under the Skin and, and the Godard film, they all speak to the kind of cultural shifts that were happening at that time. Yeah, I mean, I um, well, I'm, I'm delighted that you know <laughs> you know the full body of my work. That's uh, great to hear that. Um, I think there's there's something about the 60s and the 70s, both aesthetically in terms of the filmmaking that was going on in kind of radical circles at the time, the politics and the counterculture, um, as well as the political kind of discourse. That just you know, that's it's just my thing. It's just what what, what I'm drawn to, um, and I guess I'm I'm gradually working my way through. It. I mean, I started off with Bobby Kennedy, then I went back to Killing Oswald. In between, I'd, I'd looked at how kind of this 68 movement, protest movement in Germany and Japan played out in terms of the terrorism or freedom fighting that, that emerged in the 70s. And now I've just, this week, I've just finished a book on Watergate. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe I'm gradually getting all this out of my system. But, but as I say, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mix of kind of writing books and making documentaries about this stuff because the politics and some of the more, more notorious events of that era really fascinate me. Uh, but also I'm, I'm completely hooked on the counterculture and the kind of independent and radical filmmaking that was going on in the 60s and 70s at that time as well, which, which I guess I, 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 some of the archival content that I've used in the documentaries allows me to express that to some degree. Um, and so, um, yeah, as I say, I, I've just completed a book on Watergate that will be out in November. And then my next film project is going to be kind of a, an audiovisual history of espionage from um, post-World War II leading up to the investigations of the 70s um, and looking at, at basically the kind of intersection of how spy cinema as a, as a genre emerged and also how intelligence agencies used film in terms of propaganda, but also in training their staff in terms of how to mitigate the the Russian threat and and how those two kind of talk to each other over those over those years, so it's kind of a, like an essay film that I'm I'm now planning on that subject, which will obviously incorporate some of the stuff that I've done before as well as you know Watergate and the CIA's role in that. We are obsessed, culturally obsessed in the United States with the JFK assassination, even to the point of having you know, a movie called JFK, but we've had several, several films that have looked at the JFK assassination, not so much with RFK. And I'm curious, what are your thoughts as far as why do we focus on 63 and not 68? I think, you know, as a filmmaker trying to get, you know, trying to get the money to make 
these to get these projects made. Um, you know, you just notice between between the book and between the film that I've done, there doesn't seem to be much belief commercially that it, it's going to make a lot of money. <laughs> so that's that's one element of it. I, you know, in terms of commissioning editors for TV or, or commissioning editors for in the, in the publishing world, you can see there's there's only really six or seven uh, books out there on RFK. There's like hundreds on JFK. So, and then you know, I, I mean, I don't I don't know because I'm uh, I'm Irish, but I, I, I'm told that you know that the visibility of the Bobby Kennedy assassination for some reason hasn't really seeped through uh, into the culture quite as much. Um, um, as, as the JFK uh, assassination, so um, you know, I mean, for me, it's 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 almost the more interesting of the two in terms of the complex complexity and the mysteries and the fact that you know the convicted assassin is still in, in jail and there's something we can do about it. Um, but you know, what can you do? All I all I try to do is keep keep working on it to. Um, so I guess work with a small group of people to try and reopen the case and raise the profile of it. I mean, it's 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 quite frustrating that when you look at a, a Netflix series like Bobby Kennedy for President, for instance, that was originally pitched um, to the director who then took it on, Don Porter. Uh, it was originally framed around Sirhan's legal case. And for me, that was a really brave, challenging subject to take on, especially with Netflix as a partner and with four hours to do it in. Um, but I think, you know, the problem with a project like that is then, you know, when Sundance Productions come on, I think it was Showtime came on as the other partner, gradually it gets watered down. Um, I don't know if that's what happened, but, but you know, that's my sense of what happened. Because when you look at the four-part series, I mean, it's all very well. There's some, some great archive and it tells the story of Bobby Kennedy, which which is great to, to bring that to a young audience. But um, I just feel a chance was missed because they, they did a six-hour interview with Dr. Dan Brown, who again has the most startling new evidence in terms of uh, Sirhan's programming, and, and it was cooked completely from the series. So I think that's the kind of... Um, that's the climate you're dealing with in terms of, um, you know, making broadcasts, documentaries, or making stuff for Netflix and being able to tell the story you want to tell. Whenever you put together something, like even when it comes to putting together something as simple as a podcast, that seems to kind of shake the tree. And I'm curious, after you put out RFK Must Die, who came out of the woodwork to either correct you or to add more to the story? I think that was the good thing about the book because the book kind of followed the film. So I made the film and then the stuff came out of the woodwork, particularly around the identifications of the alleged CIA agents at the hotel and so on. That that kind of um, maybe clarified my thinking in terms of you know the balance of opinion on on whether it was who they were pertained to be or not. Um, and you know, it's a, you kind of learn. You know, it's it's a it's a long road. I mean, I've been. I guess researching the Bobby Kennedy case for 14 years, um, and my book was recently kind of reissued by Scarhurst Publishing, and I, I did a leng- lengthy kind of epilogue summarizing the last 10 years of the case, and it's quite gratifying um, how much has happened in the last 10 years and how much my views have gradually evolved, and uh, I guess. You know, the, the main thing I'd say about it is I'm now more cautious in terms of um, not jumping not jumping to conclusions. Um, I guess RFK must die 
showed a rookie investigator, you know, feeling his way into the subject and into this kind of genre and this kind of shady demimonde of, um, you know, spooks and, um, and, and lots of pitfalls for uh, an investigator into political assassination. And I guess I've, I've learned from that and been able to apply it to some of my other projects. So now taking on a, a story like Watergate, I have the benefit of that experience, but I do look for kind of, um, you know, a second or third level of, um, I guess, evidence on something before I'll commit to a, a certain view on things. How do you manage to balance all of the work that you're doing? I mean, you talked about different films that you're still working on, different books that you're still working on. How do you manage to balance that with your life and then still working at King's College? Since I started a family uh, like four years ago, um, I've been working at Kingston University uh, as a as a lecturer in filmmaking. And basically, part of my job description is not just like kind of lecturing in, in film, but also doing doing good research. And research for me includes making films or writing books. You know, as I'm as I'm doing on Watergate. Um, so it's very much supported uh, in terms of my full time job, and it's a great anchor for for the work that I'm doing. So um, so pretty much I'm, I'm I'm still making the films and, and and writing the books that I've always done, but it gives me um, it gives me a base to do that from, um, which is which has been fantastic. So uh, yeah, so I mean I think that's at the heart of. Um, any kind of independent filmmaker or kind of independent writer working on these kind of subjects, as I said, with the Bobby Kennedy assassination, there's never going to be a lot of money in it. Um, so it's it's a question of finding a right balance between, um, in my case, academia and and the, the stuff that I'm writing and filming being of research value, um, but also being what I want to do. So, um, you know, happily it's worked out quite well and uh, and I'm continuing my trajectory to the 60s and 70s. So where's the best place for people to keep up with you and all the projects you're doing? Um, I think uh, in terms of the Bobby Kennedy project, um, there's a there's a, a discussion group on Facebook, Assassination of Bobby Kennedy, where you can join that and I, I post any relevant kind of news updates or articles about the Bobby Kennedy case there. And and also my film website is uh, e2films.com, which is my production company stroke distribution company. Um, and there'll be a new website for my Watergate book shortly, but the book is called Dirty Tricks, uh, Nixon, Watergate and the CIA. So that'll be out in November through Skyhorse Publishing. And uh, I'll be setting up a website for that shortly. Shane, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure. Oh no, thanks, thanks a lot, Mike. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, and I'm, I'm glad, glad you've seen so many of the films. All right, we are back, and we were talking about the parallax view. So we were talking about the cyclical nature of this film, and I'm sorry, Chris, but I have to talk about the cyclical nature of of time itself. I mean, when I was reading a uh, a review of this movie, this uh, Rich Frank review of the film, he starts off with this whole thing kind of setting up where we're at with 
the time that this movie was released. So I want to read, and I'm sorry this is going to take a little bit, but I want to read the opening to his review. As we're watching this movie, preparing for the show, all of this garbage about QAnon comes out and all that, you know, it's like we are bathed in conspiracy theories right now. And this movie is just rife with conspiracy. So this is how he opened up his article. If it were not for a faith in conspiracies, real or imagined, I wonder if anything would hold these United States of America together. In a land where the daily motions of our lives defy any motion of rationality, it becomes a psychological necessity that we try to make sense out of the big front-page events of our common experience. Given the stuff of which history has been made during the past 15 years, the Kennedy and King assassinations, the Vietnam War, the ascendancy of Richard Nixon, and any time I say Richard Nixon, feel free to replace it with Donald Trump, it becomes clear that only conspiracies can explain all the grotesqueries away. We erect and cling to vast, convoluted webs of villainy and deceit, much the way the French once placed hope in cathedrals. Conspiracies are the opiates of the people, both on the left, whose grim analysis of the origins of Vietnam was validated by the Pentagon Papers, and on the right, which actually conspired to manufacture the conspiracies like the Chicago 7 so that the public would be able to rationalize and punish anti-war demonstrations. But some conspiracies are better than others with the best of those being those that involve murder, especially the murder of Americans of some celebrity. If you have figured out why the Ellsberg foreign policy revelations had such short media shelf life, it's because a plot to murder Asians thousands of miles away didn't have that down-home appeal. Let's face it, Watergate itself won't completely galvanize the proverbial Peorias of our society until that moment if and when the Nixon administration can be linked inextricably to some literally deadly crime of the century. Indeed, that's what the presidential legal defense is all about, since James St. Clair has made it perfectly clear that neither obstructions of justice, nor breaking and entering, nor any other known executive malfiance can qualify as the, quote, high crimes and misdemeanors, unquote, the Constitution requires for an impeachment conviction. What crime could possibly be left? Only murder. As I'm reading this, it's the same freaking day that Giuliani is on TV saying that collusion is not a crime. And I'm just like, my God, talk about a cyclical uh, pattern going on here. It's it's really frighteningly uncanny. It's that I, you the, the video that you had shared earlier today, um, the Vice News bit that I think was featured on HBO where it was interviewing those two QAnon people, I just, it, it, it just boggles my mind. It really does. I mean, like movies like this and Manchurian Candidate and Running Man and all that, they at least make it look sophisticated and you can, you can get really into it. You can get involved in it. But in the real world with these kind of things, it's just some of them are just so absurd that it just gets ridiculous at how anybody could possibly fall down that rabbit hole. But they do all the time. I'll say this much about the QAnon folks. Uh, they're being trolled by the left. The QAnon thing is a, clearly a put on by someone who knows exactly the words to get someone to believe in some nonsense. I thoroughly believe that, 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 that the whole, this whole QAnon thing that we're, that's going on right now in, in the political climate of our country is very much a, 
creation of someone on the left to troll the ever-loving shit out of the people on the right, and the people on the right are too stupid not to know better. I mean, I can definitely see that. They're the same people that thought there was a pedophile ring happening in the bottom of a pizza parlor. In the bottom of a basementless pizza parlor. <laughs> Obviously, it was taking place in the Alamo. That's why people should never forget it. Maybe instead of worrying about child pedophile rings taking place in Washington, D.C. pizza parlors, we should worry about sex trafficking in the Midwest where I live, because that is a real thing. So maybe we should be dumping our time and effort into stopping real things as opposed to fake things. Or we can go ahead and pass all kinds of crazy cockamamie laws that actually adversely affect professional sex workers and don't do a goddamn thing to stop real sex trafficking. How dare you speak to me that way? I think that they doth protest way too much when it comes to this idea of pedophilia because they are obsessed with it. And I'm just like, that's, I know that it happens and stuff, but you guys are like obsessed with this idea of these huge pedophile rings happening and, you know, Hillary there at the mantle controlling it all. And it's like, I think that you maybe have some issues you need to work out. I mean, and Roy Moore is totally fine. I mean, the reason behind pedophilia being the choice du jour is because there is nothing worse than pedophilia. So calling someone a child raper is about as bad as it I mean, what is worse than pedophilia? Pedophilia rape? I mean, but it's still pedophilia. That's that's the whole point here is pedophilia is like that's like the that's the Mount Everest of like scorched earth things you can accuse someone of. And you can murder a pedophile in their minds who could murder a pedophile and not feel guilty about it. It's almost akin to murdering a zombie. Seeing them as just like a, a non-person or just in our minds, we have this being a child molester is the absolute worst thing. It's the lowest rung on the totem pole in like prisons. It's universally just reviled by everyone. And I just, ah, it, it's, it's such a it's a terrible thing that they can like that they're using it as a weapon that they're using it as this sort of like well we're just gonna say you know like you were about to say chris about james gunn like oh he's a pedophile because he made this one these these few jokes and again my whole thing is content versus context that he was making jokes again you might not you might not find them funny and that's a personal choice and that's a comment on your feelings on humor and comedy and some of the jokes are in poor taste but comedy doesn't have to be in good taste to begin with the fact that one of his tweets was three men and a baby they just had sex with hashtag unromantic movie titles yeah a lot of people aren't gonna find that funny but i mean it you know it's kind of funny because it's clearly a cut the context of the joke is trying to come up with an unromantic movie title he's not talking about actually into three men having sex with a child but that's not what i read According to Fox News, he's a child molester. Let's talk a little bit more about the way that this movie came about, because it's kind of a fascinating tale. You know, I've I've talked before about there was the book by Lauren Singer. There were two very distinctive scripts for this, and then there's what actually came out. And um, rather than me try to uh, summarize this, there was a nice article in Film Score Monthly that uh, summarized the book, because the book... I'll be honest, there were a lot of times where I was reading the book and just was like, what the fuck just happened? Like, like things would go like, we would jump locations and time periods from 
one sentence to another or like one paragraph to another. And there was no break. There was no like double spacing or anything. Just suddenly now we're in salmon tail, you know, and it's just like, what, what the fuck just happened? You know? And it's kind of the way that they cut the movie together as well. There are a lot of scenes where we just pick up in the middle of something. So I guess they kind of kept with that a little bit, but I was confused quite a few times while reading the book. So I'm going to read this to you as well. Sorry for so much reading here. Uh, the project began with a book of the same name, the first published novel by Lauren Singer, who had previously served with the OSS during World War II. In the years after the JFK assassination, a rumor spread that a statistically improbable number of witnesses had since died, helping to popularize the already already prevalent idea that the murder was not the work of a lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, but rather a part of a wide-ranging plot. Singer's novel told the story of journalist Malcolm Graham, a witness to a Kennedy-like assassination, and they kind of start with that already have ha- having happened. Like, they have a strip of film, and they're like, look at these people on this strip of film. They have all died, kind of thing. Who discovers that a shadowy government agency called the Bureau of Social Structure is murdering his fellow witnesses. Ultimately, the Bureau pits Graham against his friend Tucker, kind of the Austin Tucker character, the only other surviving witness. And after Tucker kills the woman with whom Graham had fallen in love, the widow of a Bureau employee whose murder, in whose murder Graham participated, yeah, it's a little, you know, swirly here, Graham kills Tucker. Resigned to his fate, Graham himself dies at the hand of a Bureau agent. So we've got this Tucker and Graham thing, and then, yeah, they actually both apply to the Parallax Corporation. They both get hired by the Parallax Corporation, and they both get put onto each other's murder. So they have to murder each other. And then, yeah, they participate in killing this agent, and then there's this whole idea of one of them falling in love with this uh, widow now of the man that they murdered and her son and all this kind of stuff. And a lot of that carried through into Semple's version of it. So he changed our main character who was Graham into Frady and he changed him into a cop. And that was kind of a weird decision to do because there's the idea of having a journalist who's the outsider and trying to uncover the truth. And he has nothing, no power behind him whatsoever, but changing that to a cop now suddenly really changes the stakes. The one thing that's kind of nice though, is that simple kind of implies maybe not even implies, but says that cops are very close to assassins anyway. And it's like, you would have no problem uh, going through these tests and passing these tests with flying colors because you are just about there anyway. I like him as a reporter better. I think it's, it's a much more, I agree that it would be, it would be weird to have like the cop background intermixed with like the whole idea of setting him up to take this fall. Just because I think there would be so many more people that they would have to deal with. Well, you'd also feel like a cop would know better. Like, the thing with the journalist is, like, he kind of doesn't see it coming because he's not exactly well-versed in this area of the world. You would think if it were the cop, if he were a cop character instead, it would be a little less believable that he's so unaware, yeah, unaware, naive, that he's being set up. Which is essentially what happens at the end of the film. The Space Needle isn't in the simple version. The idea of the widow and the child 
that's there, but they're the widow and the child of, and this is going all the way back to the beginning of the podcast. They are the widow and child of, and I have to look up the character's name, Arthur Bridges, the guy that drowned in salmon tail, like going all the oh, way the back to, guy. we never even see who that guy is. And again, we don't see him in here either. So it's just like, oh, and they think like, oh, you killed my husband. No, no, I really didn't kill him. Blah, 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 blah. So there's this whole thing going on and distrust going on with that. The testing scene becomes really intense because they tell him like, they give him this, the, these test pa- uh, papers and they're just like, you're only to respond to orders not to anything else. And so he goes in and it's this whole group of people who are there to be tested. And this woman comes up, she's like, you know, can I get you a drink? And he doesn't respond at all. And then she's just like, get yourself a drink. So he's like, gets up, gets himself a drink. And then somebody comes over and says, make yourself an interesting sandwich. So he goes through this like buffet line and he puts like peanut butter on there and, um, marmalade and then push, uh, a pastrami, all this kind of garbage, and just sits there and eats the sandwich. And meanwhile, he's being observed by the testers, and they're just like, oh, look at this guy. This guy's great. And one of the other assassin assassins comes out, and there's a kitten in the room, and the assassin comes out, and he just kills this kitten. And so anybody who reacts to that, they immediately disqualify them, and Freddy's the only one who doesn't react at all. So they're just like, you're our boy. Come on in. And just kind of proving what a psychopath this guy is. And then eventually he ends up as a doomed character. Like, he kills the guy who uh, was going to kill him, but then there's another agency guy that's like pretty much on his heels, and we know that he's going to die by the end of the film. And it's really interesting to see, like, that testing scene is right there, like word for word in the Skyler version. The only thing that's different is it's not this assassin named Willie. It's just a, a, the bartender who kills the kitten. But it's just there are a lot of things that are similar and then a lot of things that change. Like the, like I said, that whole thing with the river, uh, the dam opening and all the water rushing out and stuff, that remains the same through all of them. But by the time you get to the Skyler version – you know, now we have him actually seeing the assassination. Now we have the space needle part to it. We have like when he goes to his hotel where he lives at a hotel, which is a nice thing. There's a sex scene that happens between him and the hotel proprietor's daughter. Like the hotel proprietor is basically prostituting his own daughter. And then there's also a sex scene that happens after the, uh, the murder by the, uh, the waterfall by the, the dam. It's this woman who hates cops. And when he tells her that he murdered the sheriff, she gets turned on and wants to have sex with him. <laughs> so I'm kind of glad they omitted those scenes. I think it's better, even though it's Warren Beatty, it's better that he's more of a chase character, even though it's, it's implied that he's had sex with this girl in, in his room when Paul Apprentice shows up, but it's not like, you know, there's all of this weird flirting and all of this craziness that goes on between the hotel proprietor and the daughter and, and Frady. So I'm glad that's all on the cutting room floor. I agree. I like that there's not any kind of real love interest. I mean, you know, like we talked about Paula Prentice and her just kind of immediately being killed off in the movie. 
on one hand is a little jarring, but on the other hand, I'm glad that they didn't try and pursue some kind of torn romance between them leading to some inevitable, like, choose her, choose you situation. I thought that it just, it, that following, just following Freddy was the best because like you guys said, it's, it's that whole isolation. It's that one person. He's not tied to anybody. He doesn't have any family that we know of. He's just like a perfect candidate for this conspiracy. Yeah. When he comes, when he's still a cop in the Guiler version, he's very much, he's like a Serpico cop and he gets into fights with other cops and only his chief knows that he's going on this investigation, gives him the time off, yada, yada. And the cop that he beat up at the beginning for kind of busting this case before it was ready, this case that he was undercover on, that's the guy who comes out and says, oh yeah, this guy was also loose cannon. And, you know, he, he it doesn't, Surprise me at all that he, you know, murdered this Hammond character. So it's like, okay, you know, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily play. And it's weird because Simple in his autobiography, he talks about why he changed the character to a cop. And he's just like, oh, there's way too many crusading journalists around here. So I wanted to make this character a cop and I disagree with them changing it back to a journalist. And I was like, well, I think that actually plays out well because the journalists, especially during this time, like pre, I mean, Watergate was going on, right? So it's like journalists are kind of becoming heroes. And I think this would have been a perfect opportunity for that. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I mean, like I said, just having it as a cop just seems that there's going to be so you're introducing so many more variables as a cop. And that, yeah, the idea of turning it around being like this, this is a, a lone journalist who is doing everything in his power to expose this information that's so deep seated that he's not even aware of what he's really latched onto. I just don't think you would have got that depth with a cop character. You wouldn't have gotten that. I don't know. It just, it's, it just seems like it would have been an even colder movie possibly even more removed from itself than it was with him as a journalist. Chris, you would be very happy reading the David Geiler script because Geiler has no fucking idea what how things work. And he will say that in his writing. He'll be like, then Freddy rents a P.O. box. I don't know how that's done, but I imagine that you do like talking to the reader. Oh, no, I noticed that. And again, it's I mean, David Geiler just I don't want to drag him, but just not my kind of screenwriter. We talked a lot about David Geiler in the um, Maltese Falcon episode because he was the guy that wrote the quote-unquote comedy, uh, The Black Bird, and that was as far from comedy as you can possibly get. So, well, and don't forget, he has a character named after him in Alien Covenant. And he's also heavily involved in producing the Alien films, so... And taking away control from David Fincher and saying that he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. Mm. Don't bring up Alien 3, Mike. You don't want to You don't want to bring those people back down on you again. If I've got QAnon on me, who's worse, QAnon or, or the Alien 3 apologists? Uh, maybe we should just start dragging Scientology and so you can get, just get the triumvirate of, of total psychos uh, involved with your website. You squirrel, you. Squirrel busters are coming for you. Ooh, I am about to get doxxed. 
it was funny to read Semple talking about how when they came back, like originally Michael Ritchie was supposed to be on this project and then eventually he dropped out and then Pakula got on the project and Pakula's like, this is perfect. I don't want you to change anything. And he says to the, he's, re- he's reading the script and he says to his seatmate, whoever that was, this is the f- first, first draft I've ever written and I'm ready to shoot without changing a word. And the guy in the seat behind him was a Frenchman named Robert Dorfman leans over and taps him on the shoulder and says, please, will you tell me who wrote this script? And they said, you know, he says, Lorenzo Semple, you know. Says, Dorfman owns Papillon. And he's been having great trouble. And so when he gets back, he calls up Ziggy and says, you know, could Lorenzo possibly work on this? At this time, Beatty, chiefly Beatty, but also Alan, they, they want to change my script totally after this thing, incidentally, totally. Not to get into any detail, but my hero, that my lead character was a baseball player rather than an investigative reporter. Betty had always wanted to play an investigative reporter. It really was very different, except for the, the action of it was much the same. But I mean, that I, I was not interested at all in Frankie and working on as a... Uh, so I know that I've been told Betty is, you know, is, is, he's a very smart guy, good guy, but he does a lot of writing on things. And I just didn't want to get involved with it on that level. So this perfect script, they changed totally. They want to change right. totally. Although, again, most of the action stuff, that I guess the good stuff in it is, was still in my script, but all, all the thing about the lead characters was different. And so then they, uh, Dorfman called Ziggy to see if I would work on Papillon. And I said I would. But then Peter Bart, who was then in charge of things at, uh, at Paramount, he sent me an, a very aggrieved telegram, which I... I always remember saying that, that I mad at me for quitting Parallax View. He said, you know, you, I'm shocked, Lorenzo, you'll do this for the almighty dollar. Coming from anyway, no comment. But the, uh, I wasn't getting that much of a deal. But I, I, then I wrote Papio. So then they gave the script over to Geiler, and Geiler had to turn this script around almost overnight because there was a writer strike coming. So the script that I read was dated like February 23rd or something like that. And then the, uh, the strike happened. I can't remember the exact date, but it was like early March. So there was barely any time between when he turned in his draft. Let's say it's a month. He turns in his draft and there's a month and then the strike happens. Not very much time. So then there was a lot of controversy about Pakula. Beatty and then Beatty's boy at the time, Robert Town, coming in and rewriting stuff. And now Town, he doesn't get credit on this, nor should he, because he was writing, now allegedly, and people can fight me on this, but allegedly he was writing during the strike, which is a major no-no. And this was, like, this was back when Robert Town, like I said, he was Beatty's boy. Like he was, you know, working on, um, Heaven Can Wait and uh shampoo and all these kind of things that was before i don't know when Beatty decided to punk out robert town and sell him to tom cruise because eventually robert town became uh tom cruise's bitch and for a long time you couldn't have a movie that tom cruise worked on without robert town taking a pass on the script robert town just got called a bitch on this program you're really just dragging everybody Comments are going to be so upset. Oh, yeah. Nobody comments on the show. They'll comment on me saying the wrong date for the script and that the writer's strike began on this date instead. 
The important things. Thank you for correcting me. That's all I can say. What I'm trying to say with the second half of the show is if things feel fractured and messy and all this kind of stuff, like all of our possible complaints about this movie, there's a reason for it. And that is because it was a very arduous process to get this to the screen. And it went through a lot of hands before we finally got what was out there. I mean, because Beatty was also infamous for rewriting everything as well. So stuff changed a lot before it finally got out there. And then you also had the post-production process. Like I said, they're putting in that montage or doing all these things, making these decisions as they're going along so that we got a movie as, and to me, it's a great movie. If, if we got a movie as good as the parallax view out of this, it is kind of a miracle. No, that's always the, one of the things when there's like a really insane backstory to a film and then you look at the film and it's minor complaints you're just like, wow, they really did a good job at salvaging the film and making it something worth, not only worth watching, but a good film. Yeah, and I, I, despite it's, it's never really feeling fully realized, it, it, it's still a kind, I mean, it's still, it's still a full story. It's still everything, all the bits and parts are there for a great classic 70s thriller like this. Is it my, you know, number one favorite? No, but it, it's a really interesting experience to watch knowing that so many ideas and so many eyes and so many rewrites went in. And that David Geiler was involved and it turned out to be a quality project. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. As you know, the job pays reasonably well. And if you work hard, who knows, you may uh, end up behind this desk one day. There's a storeroom there where you can leave bits and pieces. Cashier's desk. Down this corridor's the main bar. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the deep end. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jess and Chris. Chris, what is the latest with you, sir? Doing the Kolchak Tapes with you. You can check that out over at KolchakTapes.com. I'm doing a uh, twice-monthly Tales from the Crypt podcast. You can check that out over at ChroniclesFTC.com. You and I and another friend of mine are doing a Twilight Zone 1985 podcast, so you can check that out over at TwilightZone85.com. And you can check out the movie podcast that I do over at CultureCast.com. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, don't. Jesus Christ, you sound very busy. <laughs> Boy, it's almost like I have no time for anything else. And how about you, Jess? Well, I'm busy, but now it seems like I'm not compared to all those things. But <laughs> uh, no, I've been uh, so I've been pretty busy with my my everyday job, which is I work for a production company here in uh, Akron, Ohio. 
Uh, we just launched a Kickstarter actually for this uh, stop motion and virtual reality studio that we're trying to bring here. Uh, outside of that, which is very time consuming, uh, I'm kind of in the planning stages of a movie centered podcast with a friend of mine. If we can get our schedules aligned, something dealing with made for TV movies and other uh, assorted gems. Uh, and that same creative partner I'm actually collaborating on with a uh, sort of supernatural graphic novel that she's illustrating and I'm writing. So, yes, and also podcasts. I, I Any podcast I can be on, I'd like to be on them. That your Twilight Zone 85 and Tales from the Crypt, I definitely have to listen to because those are easily my top like five shows of all time. So I'll have to check those out. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.